This episode is brought to you by Fizzy Vantage, the official climbing nutrition sponsor of the Nugget Climbing Podcast. Fizzy Vantage is the leading brand in climbing nutrition with more than 40 professional climbers now using Fizzy Vantage products daily to support their training and climbing performance. Many of those names are people I have had on this show. Visit fizzyvantage.com to learn more about their many innovative research-based nutrition products and supplements, including their revolutionary supercharged collagen. That's my personal favorite. I'm rocking the unflavored flavor right now. Their performance-boosting Endurex and their delicious protein supplements, Weapons Grade Whey and the Plant-Based PowerPlex. If you would like to feel the Fizzy Vantage, head over to fizzyvantage.com and use code NUGGET15 at checkout to save 15% off any full-priced nutrition product. That's NUGGET15 at checkout, and you can find a direct link to this coupon right there in your podcast app. This episode is also brought to you by Crimped. This might be the best tool in the app store when it comes to training for rock climbing. Here's the deal. The Crimped app gives you access to 75 different workouts created by world-class climbers and coaches, Tom Randall and Ollie Tor. ding, 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 this episode of Lattice Training for free. So you can download the app right now and try it for free and see if you like it. And if you want even more training power right in your pocket, consider signing up for Crimped Plus. Crimped Plus unlocks three main things. Instead of the 75 workouts you get with the free version of the app, you will get access to over 200 workouts and progressions. That's the first thing. Secondly, with Crimped Plus, you can create your very own custom training plans right there in the app. And finally, third thing, you'll unlock a collection of skills templates designed to bootstrap your training and focus on specific areas of improvement. Want to improve your finger strength or get more flexible or finally conquer the one-arm pull-up? Well, guess what? There's a skill template for each of those things and many more that will guide you through the process. So check out Crimped. Go to crimped.com or download the Crimped app for free from the App Store and consider signing up for Crimped Plus. Crimped, training on your own has never been easier. And finally, this episode is brought to you by Grasshopper Climbing. One of the best things I ever did for my own climbing was build a climbing wall in my garage. This was a few years ago, and it was so easy to stick to a consistent training schedule at the time, and I always had really high-quality sessions on my own home wall because I had no distractions, and I got super strong the two winters that I climbed on that board. But it's a ton of work to build your own home wall. First, you have to design the thing, then you have to actually build it, then you have to decide which holds you want and order tons of holds and bolts, and then you have to set all of the boulder problems and routes. I'm guessing that most of you don't have time to do all of that. Luckily, the folks at Grasshopper Climbing designed the perfect solution. The Grasshopper Board was designed to give you an entire climbing gym experience right in your home. And the best part, they did such a good job with the hold shaping and layout that the Grasshopper Board will be right for you whether you are a beginner or you climb V15. It's so efficient, it's so good for training, and most importantly, it's so much fun to climb on. But don't take my word for it because the folks at Grasshopper just want you to try it out and see for yourself. If you want to learn more, head over to grasshopperclimbing.com or check them out on Instagram at grasshopperclimbing. Check out their boards and reach out to their sales team to see which board solution is right for you. And be sure to tell them I sent you because the folks at Grasshopper are offering you guys, listeners to this podcast, 
$500 off when you order a fully kitted out 8 by 10 foot grasshopper board. $500. And you can save even more if you upgrade to a larger board. Again, that's grasshopperclimbing.com to check out the grasshopper board. Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of the Nugget Climbing Podcast. This is your host, Stephen Dimmitt, and I am very excited about today's guest. My guest today is Ollie Tor. Ollie is the co-founder of Lattice Training, along with Tom Randall, who's been on the podcast. Lattice, of course, is one of the largest climbing training companies in the world. Ollie has rapidly become an excellent coach he coaches Aiden Roberts, who of course recently climbed his first V17 and who was recently on the podcast. And Ollie brings the expertise of being an ex-gymnast and being a very high-level rock climber himself. This guy has climbed V13 on the boulders and as hard as 514B on routes. That's 8B boulders and 8C routes for those of you listening in far off places. And he's also climbed E8 Trad in the UK. So this guy is very well-rounded, very experienced. He's walked the walk and he's helped a lot of people get a lot stronger and better at climbing. We really dove into it in this conversation and this was one of my absolute favorites. This episode is chock full of nuggets covering many, many topics. And it's three and a half hours long. So without any further ado, let's dive in. Please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with climber and coach, Ollie Tor. Hey, Steven. Hey, Ollie. How you doing? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm good. Just getting started over here. It's uh, 10 o'clock in the morning on my end, and it's a beautiful sunny day in Waco. Great. Beautiful. How's, uh, how are you doing with uh, the arm and stuff? Are you uh, able to do anything yet, or are you um, just still on that recovery? Uh, a little bit. I, yeah. So I don't know if I'll include this or not, but for people listening, I haven't talked about the injury publicly um but i partially tore my bicep tendon on day two here in waco it's very sad <laughs> but um it could have been a lot worse i've been working with matt Haliger, who's a physical therapist who i had on the show recently he's awesome he's been so helpful um we think it's like a grade one maybe a grade one plus he called it um it's been about 10 or 11 days since the injury and i actually climbed in the gym for the first time yesterday so that felt really nice um stuck to vertical and slabs and just worked on technique and movement. Um, but I was able to pull a little bit, especially like in lock-off positions. I just have to be really careful with extended positions, underclings, things like that. I can't really do any of that yet. But yeah, he's he's really optimistic. He's happy with the rehab so far. And I'm optimistic too. I think in a few more weeks, I'll be, I'll be able to do some rock climbing. So yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, I'm so excited for you. I was there. Uh... I wasn't expecting you to have climbed maybe at this point. I know it's kind of like that sort of maybe two-week mark or something like that. So uh, that's awesome. Yeah, I'm really psyched that you've actually gone to the gym and done some moves in, in this quick duration. So it sounds like it's on the mend. Yeah, thanks. That's good to hear from from you. I mean, I don't have very much experience with this type of injury, but I, I do think it's on the minor side as far as these things go. And 
Um, I'm just happy that I didn't blow it, you know? Like I went to the gym and actually had self-control and didn't overdo it. And my arm feel, this is, you know, um, 12 hours later or 15 hours later, I climbed yesterday and it feels pretty good. It's not, you know, it wasn't pissed off and irritated this morning. So I'm like, okay, yeah, I'm... I learned something after all these years because <laughs> I've definitely I, I can, I can blown believe. that in the past, you know? Yeah. What were you going to say? Oh, yeah, yeah. I was going to say, it's so hard to behave, isn't it, when you've kind of had yeah. some time up and you're restraining. We've uh, we've had some really good, uh, interesting clients over the years, actually, where someone's got like their leg in a cast and they've broken their leg or same thing, they've had like a really bad arm injury and... There's so much training you can do around it, but that initial session back or when when the legs out of the cast or their arms back in use, it's like, oh, just behave, please behave. You work so hard, just behave. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it's yeah. kind of cool to you, you've crossed that boundary, and hopefully, it'll just keep getting better from here. There's a there's a funny recalibration that has to happen. I was noticing this yesterday, where I would look at the wall. And be like, oh, that's a V, you know, I was like looking at the steeper section of the wall and just immediately thinking like, oh, that's a V2. I can warm up on that. And then reminding myself like, nope, those are off limits. I'm not there yet. I can maybe do a V2 or three over here on the vert. But that's just funny. Like, I feel fine. You know, I feel my body feels normal. My mind is the same as it was before. So I'm like, yeah, I should be able to hop on that. No problem. Um, and I was noticing yesterday, there's, I, I just have to kind of like rewrite that story a little bit and constantly remind myself what I'm here to do today, <laughs> what I'm allowed to do. And, and, um, that, yeah, like this is, this is probably the most critical part of the whole process where it's so important that I, you know, yeah, behave like you said <laughs> and don't overdo it. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, um, it's been really interesting actually lately. I've been doing some work slightly outside of climbing um in terms of like more therapy style work and and working with other sports and there's it's really interesting how they stage their recovery processes and i think i'm going to kind of put something out on social media about this via lattice or teaching the other coaches that there's that neuromuscular retraining phase and all the other bits you can do around it but it's so interesting to treat that as a breaking down the defense mechanisms around that injury or retraining the body to use the arm properly without starting too quickly because then you'll overcompensate elsewhere and actually seeing that as this is a really important stage in the in the training and treat it as a stage in itself which is kind of obvious and I think any physios out there will be going well duh but I think as the climbers ourselves we really really forget that so I'm um I'm currently working with a randomly GB judo team. So the Olympic judo team hmm. in terms of uh, like a slightly different element to my strength conditioning work that I'm doing. So I went down and I'm supporting them for their grip strength training. And there's an athlete down there who has a full elbow rupture. So they got their elbow pretty much snapped in half at the world championships. And we're going to go through their sort of training process coming back from that. And I was thinking, God, I mean, how do you start fighting again with a coming back from injury? Like you can do all the SNC in the world and you can do all this retraining and like basic techniques and movements. But at the end of the day, the stimulus that's coming to that arm is not by the person. They can't really control it. Someone's about to throw them over their shoulder. <laughs> uh, and I f I'll find this because sort of, I'm kind of involved as a sort of consultant and looking at their 
their arm they can use and keeping up uh, strength in the, in the forearm. And um, it'll be really interesting to see and work with the coaches there to see how they actually reintroduce fighting into uh, into the rehab. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, I, I find all this stuff really interesting. I'm already up on the tangent. So it's, uh, it's kind of cool that you, you're already on that process. Well, yeah, what, what you're making me think of immediately, I mean, God, that sounds uh, so scary as an athlete coming back from an injury to have another person, like something so out of your control. I mean, it, it reminds me of, of why I went to the gym yesterday. You know, I'm in Waco. I could have gone into the park and sought out easy climbs and done them. But we were on a tour the other day. I was just hiking around and kind of looking at different rock climbs and realizing again, like learning this lesson again, like, man, rock climbing has so much of the unexpected element, you know, even, even easy rock climbs, you go out to Waco, maybe you climb a V0 or a V1, but what if there's a chossy top out and you end up over gripping to avoid, you know, a, a sketchy hold that looks fragile or something like that. You, you just, it's so much easier to get into these situations where, you do something that you otherwise wouldn't have because of the fear element, because of the, yeah, you do a high ball and you can't just jump down onto the pads, whatever it is. So I, I went to the gym on purpose to try to eliminate some of that, um, you know, lack of control, the unexpected that comes with, with rock climbing, but rock climbings don't fight back. So that's, <laughs> I don't know how, I don't know how you would build up the confidence in that scenario. That's yeah. That's really interesting to think about. Yeah, and we, we spend so much of our time um, trying to train our bodies to be like this unconscious, flowing, nice, moving, climbing machine. And, you know, like you want the ability, like, I mean, we've talked about some of the boulders you're on, where you're like, you do a move and you want your arm to snap and hold the position before you've had time to think about it, because that's how quick we're trying to have contact strength and power. And now you've trained all your time to do this, and you, your muscles are going, but I'm doing the right job. I'm I'm doing what you told me to do. And yet that's exactly what you don't want right now. You want them to be relaxed and not over grip. And if your foot slips, not hold on and hold the position because mm. you're protecting your bicep, but you go against years of training the opposite way on that. So yeah, you're totally right. Going in the gym, doing something you don't really care about is the way forward. Yeah. I hadn't planned to, to uh, spend too much time on this because I feel like my time with you is precious and I have like a, <laughs> I spent all morning trying to compress like a three page outline into one page. Cause it was just totally, it was just totally ridiculous. I had way too many things that I was hoping to talk to you about in one podcast. But, um, but I do think this is interesting and it is something that we talked about briefly um, a few weeks ago in our pre-interview. What is the process like to take an injured athlete who's recovering a climber? Let's just stick with climbing building that confidence again, building the confidence to be able to try hard on rock again. What You shared some interesting thoughts, which is why I'm bringing it up. What are some of the things that you think about as a coach that are some of those important ingredients or steps in that final stage of, of rehab where you know, you've strengthened yourself doing really controlled exercises, um, maybe you've even climbed in a controlled manner in the gym on, you know, on a board or systems board, whatever, but then you want to go back to rock climbing and there's these elements of being out of control of quote risky movements. You know, so much of rock climbing just exposes kind of our biochemistry in, in these challenging positions and compromised positions and movements and things that aren't perfectly economical. How do we get back to that point? Like what do we do as athletes 
to get the confidence back to be able to try hard on rock again? I think there's a couple of key elements that I would personally think about. And the way that I would end up manipulating them, which I do with most of my coaching and the way that I tend to operate is providing constraints and learning-based constraints. Um, so it allows freedom within a constrained um within a constrained sort of uh, modality. So if I explain that a bit more, it's, for instance, one of the things I would firstly look at is who am I dealing with? Am I dealing with a historical thrasher? And those of you out there know who you are of, you know, you just can't help yourself. You want to have another go. You want to do another route. You want to do another problem. Is that something that you would naturally veer towards? Or are you someone who, Maybe it's a little bit overly cautious when your skin starts to go a bit thin. You think that actually that's me done for the session. I'd kind of be, you know, trying to figure out where I would naturally sit. And then I already know, am I going to be someone that's overly pushing or being overly cautious? Because that has two different outcomes, really, depending on the type of person. The thrasher is someone who needs to provide a constraint at the end of the session and the person who's overly cautious might need a little bit more pushing now. She won't ever develop that reconfidence again. So you might want to make sure you do a certain number of moves or climbs, even if you're starting to feel like, oh, I'm not quite sure where I'm at, because you can always drop the level down. So that'd be one thing that I would look at. So you're constraining almost like the length of the session based on and the, the amount of intensity based on your natural personality. And then another element would be I would provide the constraint like you've very accurately done with the location. So, you know, climbing is all about location, location, location. And that style of movement can just be so easily managed by choosing the right crag or the right mm. problems, um, sorry, or the right boulder uh, venue. So for something like a, a bicep um, tendinopathy or any sort of strain, I'd be going, okay, instantly, if there's like a small roof that goes all the way across the crag, that's not going to be good because even on the easiest climbs, I'm going to be sort of building that up. That wouldn't be the first place I start visiting because if you're a thrasher, you're going to do loads of time on that roof and probably try something too hard. And if you're overly cautious, then you're probably going to end up spending too much time locking off. You might end up trying to sit on bolts. You might build up some really bad movement patterns around that roof. Mm. So, okay, let's avoid that scenario because that's going to be something that works the injury we're looking at. So another constraint would be the location I'm thinking of. Um, and effectively, I kind of run through several different scenarios in my head around this, around the person and what their goals are coming back. And eventually, don't get me wrong, I would want them to be back where they want. If you're a thrasher, I'll get you back to thrashing within the constraints I think is useful or what I can hold you back to anyway. And if you want to climb on steep roofs, we need to get you at steep roofs. But when you're first coming back to rock, the thing I like to really judge is let's make sure that you can enjoy the session. You can not have to overthink and you just have some of these easy backstops and easy constraints, which means that the decision is already made before you arrive. I think a lot of climbing and a lot of rehab is all about intent. And that intent should be made halfway through the session based on how you feel, because uh, with anything to do with tendons, you warm into it and anything to do with climbing, you're going to ignore what your body's thinking. Mm. So let's provide these intents and these constraints before we arrive. And then we can just enjoy the session for what it is. That's great. 
Yeah, that's super helpful. That immediately, um, through that lens, I can see where I went wrong with my first finger injury. You know, it's like once you warmed up and had the tape on it and everything, it's like, oh, it actually feels pretty good today. I think I can try reasonably hard. And um, that was absolutely not the thing to do. So if having that intent before you start the session, yeah, um, super important. That makes a lot of sense. And I think uh, communicate that intent as well with the person you're climbing with, for mm-hmm. sure. Like there's nothing better than having someone go, you told me on the drive here you were going to stop after three weeks and you're just tying into your fourth. I'm going to refuse <laughs> to be late. <laughs> totally. <laughs> yeah, that's great. That accountability. Well, Ollie, it is, uh, it's great to have you here. Thanks, thanks for doing this. I've been very excited to talk to you. I've followed Lattice for since the beginning, really. Um, I told this, this story, I think, during my interview with Tom Randall. I just went back and listened to that um, episode 74 for people that haven't heard it. But um, I think I first connected with Lattice. It was you and Tom and maybe just a couple other people at the time in 2016. And at the time you know, the website barely worked, like you couldn't buy anything on the website. Um, I wanted to buy the lattice rung, like the test rung to to measure my finger strength. And Tom connected me with Dale and I had to like wire transfer, like bank wire transfer him the money. And then like miraculously the thing showed up later and it was like, I don't know, just it, you guys have come so far. It's amazing to see what you've built with lattice. Um, it's been really fun to follow the journey and yeah, I've been really looking forward to this conversation. So thanks for being here. Oh, thanks very much. Yeah, I thought um, when we were discussing it before, I kind of had a quick reminder of our sort of timeline. And I thought, actually, I'm not sure we've said this publicly yet. Um, A funny little anecdote was, I don't know if people or yourself remember the first sort of training beta podcast we did. Uh, I think it was myself and Tom. Oh, yeah. And that, that was really, really early on. And we did the podcast on one night and we were like, we told her all the details and how people can follow us. We did not have any, we didn't have a website. We didn't have anything. Up. We were like, <laughs> shit, shit, let's get, make a website tonight. We've got to make a website. She's releasing it tomorrow. And like myself, Remus and uh, Tom were like scrabbling, trying to figure out, like obviously Remus can make a website. We we're like, we've got to get this live because people are going to listen to us and they're going to think that we're professionals and we have no idea what we're doing. So, <laughs> But like that's um the start of our uh of lattice was very much down that kind of uh you know hustling side of uh of work and i remember a junior coming and doing a little bit someone i trained since they were a junior and i think he was 17 doing some work with us at one point and uh i remember him saying you guys really seem like you have it all together but you know when you actually help out you realize it's a complete mess isn't it I was like, absolutely <laughs> Best way to be, just get it done and hustle. <laughs> there's there's such a good life lesson there, I think, um, which is that, yeah, you don't have to have it all figured out right away. You can just go and fix some of those things and refine those things as you go and don't let the, I think this is the big trap, right? It's like thinking that you have to have everything perfect before you even start. And then that kind of fear, that deep like lizard brain discomfort of what are people going to think? They're going to judge it. It's not perfect. It could be better. It just keeps you from ever doing anything. You know, it keeps you, I guess, stagnant and keeps you from taking a leap on that idea. So credit to you guys for doing that. I have the opposite personality where, 
you know, before launching the podcast, I spent like weeks researching and bought all the equipment and dialed in the sound and all these things. And I still like, I've learned a ton and, and made things a lot better in the last few years, but really wanted to come out of the gate with a good sounding podcast. But the funny thing is like, it probably didn't matter because no one was listening back then, you know, um, like episode one, two, and three, those, those still have very few downloads compared to where we're at now. And, um, anyway, yeah. So don't let the perfectionism keep you from making the thing that you want to make. If you're, if you're a creator out there listening or a coach or whatever. Or even just a, a climber and you're thinking about mm. um, training. One of the things I see all the time, like is there's so much information out there about training. And, um, obviously we've contributed to that enormous amount of information going out there, which sometimes can feel a little bit overwhelming because you're trying to absorb as much as you can. You're trying to make things perfect. And I think the, I mean, a, a lot of people feel this kind of, um, sort of paralysis by analysis. You sit down with creating a training plan for yourself. You're like, I'm really psyched. I'm going to, I'm going to do this. I'm going to get this right. And Oh, I've, I've learned that I really need to focus on my sleep. So I'm going to stop using my screen at this time. And then in the morning, I'll have caffeine one hour after waking because that's what the human said. And you get all this information in and all of a sudden you can't even start week one. You start slipping off the train and then two weeks later, you're going to go, okay, I'm going to make this plan. It's really good. And you, you perpetually go through this cycle. Mm. And the biggest lesson I've learned is just action breeds motivation and action breeds progression just do something, just whatever it is, if whatever the basic thing is, just go and do it right now and the rest will follow. The worst thing you can do is just try and overthink something too much and just not do something in the moment and mm. get yourself going. And like you said, you were, you did all the research, but then you had to start. And I know you said in one of the other podcasts that you listened back now and you realized that active listening doesn't really work on a podcast, and but you were doing that a lot before. But that's something you learned. If you had been so worried about that at the beginning and deleted the podcast or not done it, you wouldn't be here today with 200 or whatever podcast you are now and a load of merchandise. And yeah, it's brilliant. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, to you're totally right. Yeah, I remember um, what Ollie's referring to there for people that haven't heard it is I used to just you know, active listening, like, mm, 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 yeah, constantly. And I would edit a lot of them out. And even, even still, I go back and listen to some of those older episodes and I'm like, God, I just wouldn't shut up, would I? Just <laughs> constantly <laughs> chuckling, <laughs> laughing, saying, mm, saying, you know, little things in here that, that just don't need to be there when the other person's talking on a podcast. So yeah, lessons learned. But that I yeah, that that's such a great point with climbing training. I was that person, the analysis by paralysis. I was always asking that question of like what is the best way? What's the best way to get my fingers strong? What's the best way to train for sport climbing, etc.? And that's just such a bad question to ask, and it took me forever to figure that out. And what I would say, this is what I've learned for myself and what I would say for people listening is you're going to learn so much from going through an imperfect program that has so much more value, the experience of that, than listening to another dozen podcasts to try to figure out what to do before you get started. And then, you know, it doesn't have to be perfect. You'll learn something, you'll get better at something, and you'll refine it over time, you'll tweak it over time, you'll, you'll realize that um, there's a ton of different things to work on as a climber and you don't have to do them all now. So many lessons, so, yeah, that's great. Oh, absolutely, and what you do now to get good 
And the thing that will make you get to the next level when you're at that next level, it's probably not going to be the same thing that makes you get to the next level. Or uh, there's a really good phrase, isn't there, in terms of what um, what got me here or isn't only going to help me progress further, something along those lines. And so that means that if you're so focused on getting things right, you're going to have to relearn the process anyway. So you're better mm-hmm. off being good at choosing and being good at deciphering the information or knowing what works for you as a person. And I think we'll go on to this later in terms of you know, talking about my methodology with coaching and sort of the playbook that figure out what works for you and that method will work forever. Figuring out what works right now isn't going to last very long. Mm. Yeah, what got me here won't get me there. I think that's that's the phrase that I've heard a lot and I, I love it. Yeah, so much in those few words. Um, well, awesome. I'm, I'm really excited. I have, like I said, way too long of an outline. So what I would love to start with actually is to check in with you. Um, because like I said, (laughs) I had all these notes, um, you know, you and I have been emailing back and forth and I have all these great notes from your emails. And then we did a pre-interview and I have notes from that. And I made this massive outline. There's way too much stuff on there. And then I spent all morning trimming it down. But then I went back and read your email, your first email, and was like, fuck, I missed some of the stuff that was like, you know, the, <laughs> the key stuff that he wanted to talk about in this email. And then I have um, a ton of, of patron questions for you that are really great questions. Some of them are pretty case study-like, you know, like these are specific climbers with specific challenges that want a coach's feedback, which is great, but um, obviously that's going to take us in a lot of different directions. So... A couple questions for you to get started here. Um, I did this with Aiden Roberts too. Like before we'd even started talking, I was like, hey, would you want to do a round two and just do like a listener Q&A? Um, how do you feel about that? I, I know you are you have a lot of, um, you just, you have your hands in so many things and you're so busy with Lattice. Are you interested in doing a round two to tackle listener questions? Or do you want to try to, another thing we could do is I could pick just like two or three or four of them and try to mix them into this conversation. No, no, let's do, let's do a round two. Yeah, yeah. All um, right. I love anything where you can directly help people as well. I mean, uh, the name of your podcast in terms of getting those little nuggets out there with questions coming in and being able to answer those. Hopefully, my any bits of information which don't spark up without cues will get so yeah, bring to life with some questions. So yeah, hundred percent. We'll do it. We'll do another round of this. Okay, perfect. I will save the listener questions. Patrons, thank you for submitting those. I will hold on to those for round two. And maybe what I'll do then is we can just go through um, the outline that we had talked about for this conversation and then everything that we covered. Maybe I'll I'll be able to cross off some of those questions for the round two. Um, but then the next question for you, Ollie, is with all of the things that we've talked about in the pre-interview, et cetera, what would you be really bummed if we didn't talk about today? What are the things that really rise to the top to you that feel like they haven't gotten enough airtime that have been on your mind? Things along those lines. Are there a few topics that that come to mind when I ask you that question? Oh, I'm uh, I'm not sure. I uh, for any of the listeners, I was in uh, in my van in France when I first emailed, and uh, I was. Um, so it was mid-project at the time and we were having a rainy day where I was expecting to climb. So I had pretty much some thrashing on the keyboard to do and <laughs> sent over an email with a million ideas. And then in our pre-interview, I think I rambled on money topics for about an hour. So I'm, I'm, 
I'm pretty psyched. Whatever you think works best for the listeners, I'll go with. Okay. Okay, perfect. Um, in that case, I have an outline. We'll just go from there. We'll go through th- some things and then I'll check in with you in an hour or so and see if there's anything that we've missed. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm so excited. So first thing, you already touched on this so far in the conversation. Um, one of the things, I have a list of like most important things, like things that we, we want to make sure we hit on today. Having a working formula for athletes and how that ties into the individuality that we have as athletes. I think that's such an interesting conversation to explore with you because Lattice has kind of become known just just out of um, logistics, I think, just based on what's easy to communicate over the internet, what's easy to show people in videos and talk about on podcasts. You guys have kind of become known as a company for the assessments that you do, for the data that you collect, for the way in which you can correlate data to climbing performance and start to identify weaknesses for climbers. But of course, as has become a theme on the podcast, measuring your finger strength on a 20 mil edge, there's just so much more to climbing. There's so much more even to finger strength than that ability. Um, And every climber is so different. This is something that has been a real that I've had a lot of growing pains around personally, because for the longest time I was just obsessed with uh, what appeared to be my greatest weakness, which was that damn 20 mil one arm, you know, one, one handed hang. Um, But anyway, I think that over focus kept me from identifying lessons about my finger anatomy, lessons about my own personal superpowers and, and um, the ways in which I could become a better climber. If I leaned into some of my strengths and things like that. So now I'm the one that's that's rambling, but given that lattice, given that you do these assessments and you have like a few specific things that you tend to measure in your athletes, what are some of the caveats that come with that when you're onboarding a new client? You know, because it, it sounds like from our previous conversation, you've actually had some clients where it was totally unexpected things that ended up making the biggest difference for them, you know, based on who they were as a climber, what their superpowers were, uh, giving them exercises or drills to do that were totally separate from, from what it seems like the focus of lattices from the outside. Um, so yeah, how do you, how do you think about that? The assessment process and then the caveats that come with it for, for clients and athletes. So I guess, um, when an athlete comes to, anyone at lattice um myself and the other coaches and they want they want us they want support towards their goals whatever their goals are pretty much if we were going if i started off and i said okay what we'll do is um you're going to carry on training and then i'm going to start like looking at what training you're doing what numbers you're doing and then i might start suggesting things to do then i'll start to build an idea it's a really really slow process and I see it as a real privilege that people are putting their time in your hands. I mean, the most valuable thing we have is our time and climbers putting it six months or a year and they're trusting you to have like a key moment in their life in your hands as a coach. You need to maximize that time as much as possible and give them as much as possible. Um, say like right now, if, uh, if you're, three years old and you want to reach a certain level uh, by the time that you're 35 or you've got a certain limit you want to reach in bouldering or so on you're only 33 once 
And this is, uh, we're, we're on a ticking time scale. So the assessment is all about speeding up that process. So what we've done is we've taken the same thing that every other sport uses, which is collecting a bit of data, understand the key metrics of climbing, which we didn't actually know at the beginning. Like you can say finish and say key metric of climbing, but who really knows until you start seeing a load of people with strong fingers on the same test actually performing. Mm. So we do some really basic tests. We start building those out. And what that does is allows us to fast track some, some basic things. So just to see whether you're hitting some really obvious key metrics or key attributes that a climber generally has. Then the next bit is when it starts creating the formula beyond that. So you, you've got the first bit, which speeds up the process. That doesn't change what someone does, particularly in their training um, when we're working with people. What that does is it adds one piece of information. The next piece of information comes from their history, their feedback, what they feel and what's going on. So that uh, internal load that they understand of themselves during an exercise. So if a person comes to us and they do our finger strength testing on a 20 mil edge, and it's just the most basic format that we do, it can be found free on our website doing a 20 mil edge hang and it comes up weak. And then in their feedback to me, they're describing their training. They say, oh, I never struggle to hang on to things. I find it that I'm always not able to pull to the next hold. There's two counteracting bits of information, but both of them get taken into account into this formula. So, okay, there's something going on here. Okay, now what do we take for the next piece of the formula? Let's start the training up and see how you adapt and what's coming out. What are your goals in terms of the specifics of the climbing that you're doing? So the assessment process is about speeding up that process and providing the first step of information. Then the next bit is all the history and the feedback that we get from the athlete themselves. Then you start building a relationship and you start helping them understand their training patterns themselves. And you don't get it right every time. I think this is one key element with training is that you're always going to have teething issues because <laughs> if it, and if it feels weird or different, that's because it's different. That's great. If you, if it didn't feel weird or different, then you probably not change very much. Mm. So uh, there's always going to be that kind of teething issue process. And I guess the formula and what I see all the time is that people start working with attributes that you're building on that are really working for you. And those are the things that stick. And it's kind of almost like uh, what works for the body will stay on because you're getting good feedback on it. Um, and then if stuff isn't working or it's not working for right now, then you can just put that to one side. We start building a better and better understanding of an athlete. Um, and once again, that is, it's never going to be just physiologically based. So someone's formula for what they would absolutely adapt to perfectly with for max strength if i had a boulder saying i want to be super powerful if i went through uh, the normal strength conditioning process of, let's do a little bit of hypertrophy just for a short period then some strength then we'll do max strength we'll do a phase of power we'll do max strength throughout this we're working on their fitness but if i said that and i'm like okay we need a good 16 week period to make this really effective i guarantee you'll be more powerful then but from everything they've told me, they've got the attention span of a three-week sort of trainer. I've already lost them. Mm. So I'm going to make that work based on them as well. So the formula is so individual, but 
all of these bits of information is what helps us develop that. Um, so yeah, the hopefully that answers your your question that the the assessment is stepping stone one, and everything else that comes after all contributes towards the formula. Hmm. Yeah, that that makes sense, and that's helpful to hear. I think the assumption that um, that I'm tempted to make in seeing these videos about, you know, testing people and talking about how that relates to their climbing performance. The assumption is that those are the things that you prioritize and focus on for most of your athletes, um, you know, getting better at the tests, so to speak. Um, so, so yeah, it's interesting. I, I think it'd be fun to hear in a second, like what some examples are of things that you, that people would be surprised by. Like I, you know, I have this client, I worked on this thing that's totally separate from, um, the testing exercises that we do and and why that f- was the right th- call, why, why that was the right fit for those climbers. Some of the unexpected things that have made a big difference for people. Um, but we should probably add a little more context before we jump into that. Can you tell me what, what are the key elements that you've kind of um, landed on as the Lattice team in those assessments and maybe some of the things that would be surprising to people because of course like the you know the five second max finger hang um i think has been there from the start and is still something that you guys do what are some of the other elements that um that fit into that initial assessment and why are those things important so another test that we do a lot of um is sort of looking at the energy systems involved in climbing so climbing obviously you know, it can be a one-move climb, it can be a 60-move outrageous thing in, in Spain somewhere. So we actually, by dictating the climb that someone's doing, or sorry, um, working around the goal that someone has, we have a different sort of energy system contribution that's needed for that. And one of the tests that we do is looking at uh, their energy systems across the spectrum using something called uh, critical force, and then the anaerobic profile or W prime. And what that's looking at is what's kind of like their base endurance level, which everything below that critical force is they can recover and they can do that forever. It's almost like until energy depletion. And then everything above that is pretty much on a time scale. It's using high energy substrates and they've got like a time limit on that. So above that level is the anaerobic profile. And depending on what intensity you're at, it's kind of how much short power endurance you have. Is critical force and is that an aerobic threshold? Are those kind of the same thing? Yeah, very, very, very similar. Okay. Yeah. So we're looking at um, trying to balance out those two, which is still a really complicated thing in climbing because we're a contract, relaxed sport. We're holding on, we're getting occlusion in the forearms, so there's no blood flow, and then we're relaxing and we're getting a reperfusion of oxygen. And, but all of these things are going on, which realistically you don't actually need to know. Like when, when it comes down to it, what's going on physiologically is something that we might be interested in from a research level. But what we're actually most interested in is the outcomes of this and the real world outcomes. And it's trying to figure out, are you failing on a route because you're unable to recover on a jog? Or are you failing on a route because every time you let go, you're not able to deliver options to the muscle quickly? Or is it because that that boulder problem halfway up the route or the boulder problem from the ground is 12 moves long and you have an eight move 
maximum time scale for that intensity because it's so close to your max. So the test that we do that looking at is pretty much doing either doing uh, repeaters at different intensities or a really fun test, which I think a few people have seen on YouTube, which is on a digital run and it's all out uh, max effort for every uh, contraction. And you're doing that for sort of four minutes. And what that does is it tells us where the, the stopping point is for the amount of force you can produce and everything above that is on a decline. And um, if you want to see it, probably the worst version of that was with Magnus on his YouTube channel because that early in the phase, we didn't understand how quickly you could find this critical force. So we made him do it for eight minutes. <laughs> and um, he said afterwards, if he wasn't being filmed for YouTube, he would have walked straight out. But <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was amazing to see, like the guy's an absolute beast. Like he just, he pretty much stuck at this critical force, this like level and just stuck at it for about four minutes. And oh. it feels like you're not doing anything. It's like your arm's not working anymore. Um, so yeah, that, that's one of the key tests we do. And that allows us to tell um, whether the athlete is ready for the goal that they're actually choosing to do. Mm. That's that's so on brand for Magnus. He just seems to love to get himself into these situations where he has to suffer for the camera. <laughs> Um, I don't yeah, know why it's fun was, to watch. Uh, What's wrong with signed. the rest of us too? Like, why is that? Why is it so fun to watch someone like him just suffer on YouTube? I don't know. Um, oh, I uh, in person it's great when you're watching people doing this and they're absolutely uh, screaming their head off, still trying to pull, and they're barely pulling any weight at all. Like all the <laughs> all the staff here at Lattice, everyone who works here has all done it, and we did it as a group one day. And obviously, being a competitive bunch. Um, it became like pretty funny, and one of one of the guys almost fainted uh, during <laughs> one of the contractions. He was trying so hard, and I don't think he got any blood to his face. So, um, yeah, you can be rest assured that any test that you do as part of the a lattice service has been well and truly battered a load of the staff in the testing process. So uh it's been it's been used by all of us as well mm, that's great there's a there's a great video of uh dave mcleod doing this too i'll link to that in the show notes and that gives people a good I idea of what you're talking about um but yeah that yeah. leads that leads one us the, in oh go ahead sorry let say one of the uh the other sets of tests that we've been doing a lot more recently which has been led by josh hadley is um flexibility tests and that's looking at um sort of passive movement versus active range of motion um, and I think that's been something which has been really, really good for athletes to use in the sense of we're looking at what's going on in the forearms. And we also do all the basic kind of pulling, pushing, uh, bench press versus bench pull and so on. But the flexibility stuff really shows what people are capable, what positions people are capable of actually using in real world rather than just going into box splits, which was our typical test and has some pretty good correlations with performance, but often can hide the fact that someone can really push themselves down into box splits for a test and they can take the pain of, you know, squeezing that last centimeter out. But if you do the sort of full flexibility testing that Josh has created, um, you can see, can I actually lift my leg into that position? And for any of the athletes that have done that, I found that a really, really interesting thing as a coach to use. Mm. Got it. So they might be able to, the athlete might be able to push themselves into these end ranges, but not actually have the strength to use those end ranges during climbing. 
Yeah, exactly. And I think um, there's probably a bit of literature out there suggesting that uh, men are a lot closer in terms of passes versus active range, whilst female athletes tend to be uh, larger passive range compared to active. But mm. from mm. my experience, the training history of the athlete plays a massive role in that. And it also plays a massive role in what you do with that information. So once again, you've got a test, you can see, okay, they're, they're pretty good uh, passive range of motion, but they can't quite get into that position. So what they've been telling me on the wall about feeling stiff and not being quite good on vert, do just doing more passive stretching isn't going to help them. So let's get their active range better. That saves us weeks of testing out the passive range uh, modality of training, uh, speeds up the process, they feel better on the wall. And then maybe that actually makes them feel like their fingers have got stronger without having to mm. spend ages on the fingerboard, which they're already trying their best to do. Interesting, just because they can get their hips closer to the wall and, and things like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That reminds me of uh, Neil Gresham talking about working on Lexicon and working on his ballerina drills of high stepping. Um, you know, he's like, I need stronger fingers for these crappy little holds. I need stronger fingers because they're kind of slopey. And then he's like, well, actually, what if I could get my hips just like, you know, a few centimeters closer to the wall? And it worked. As he said, it made a huge difference and he actually felt stronger on the holds from doing that. So it's great. That's awesome. Do you, do you have resources on your YouTube channel for active flexibility? Uh, yeah, I believe so, actually. Yeah, Josh, um, he does a lot of the YouTube stuff. He's done a great job with that. And uh, I think he tries to push out quite a lot of the information on on active mobility so yeah any sort of drills or exercises you want and there'll be quite a lot on there already and then on our instagram i believe as well but if um if people ever want more information on that then just uh just send a message in because um i mean josh is so passionate about that and he knows a lot more about it than than me so mm. uh it's cool to have people on the team like that so uh yeah they're really excited to spread the word with the community that's awesome that's great Okay, I want to get into, um, I don't know how to tackle this. I want to talk more about some of the things that you wish people thought about more when it comes to discovering each of our own individual superpowers as climbers. Because um, the lattice testing, you know, like the, the uniform rung, uh, testing your max finger strength on it, then testing your critical force on it and these different energy systems, it's really enticing. It's really seductive because it is so simple. It's so measurable. It's like, you know, for, for me, it's like the thought of reducing climbing to my forearms and then being able to measure everything on this one size edge and learning what I need to focus on. I love my engineer brain. I'm like, yes, I love that. I want to quantify. I want to know where I stand. I want to know what to focus on. But you know, like we talked about in our pre-interview, that gets a lot of emphasis just because it's easy to talk about. It's easy to have videos about this and explain it in a way that is transferable via the internet because, you know, you don't have all the nuance of like a complex athlete. What are some of the things that you focus on with clients that might surprise people listening or that you feel like are getting missed with an overemphasis on, on the simple testing and the forum stuff? Uh, I think a, a big thing is um, trying to figure out what works for you and your body and your head in terms of trying to combine, like we said before, a little bit about that formula and 
trying to figure out what training suits what's uh, your sort of approach and what you mentally like to do. And then also trying to look at climbing um, in a more holistic manner. So don't just look for the most obvious thing or where you're feeling the most stimulus. Like a lot of the time we focus on our fingers because we've got so many nerves in the end of our fingers and we can feel them ripping off the holds. And it is a massive contribution to performance. I'm not saying it's not. But when I look at climbing movements and probably a good way to explain this is, is the way I've sort of taught how to prescribe conditioning to the coaches is if someone comes to me, I go uh, looking at, say, like a problem they want to get better at or a style of climbing they want to improve at. Um, I was taught uh, weightlifting and, and working with athletes in, in kind of like this, this manner, which is movement first, then joint, then muscle, then action. So when I watch someone do a climb, I go, what movement is that? And then I'm going, oh, what joints are involved? And then uh, what muscles are around those joints? And what's the action of those muscles? And what that allows me to do is then break down movement patterns and prescribe them. And it seems really like a um, mechanic, but it's actually a really nice way of better understanding your body and how connected it is and how one movement can flow into the other. But how all your really complex musculoskeletal system actually works so for example um a friend of mine who's a coach uh was asking me about a a climb the other day uh, for an athlete of theirs um someone who's not not at lattice because we, you tend to sit around and share all the information anyway but we were discussing hours of wonder which is aiden's 80 plus mm. uh boulder problem here in the uk and you look at that problem and the picture is like if you look at Aiden on it, you're like, wow, look at them deltoids. It's all about big shoulders, like high angle crimping. And, you know, you're, you just, you're, it's really easy to focus on that because, well, I mean, look at the size of Aiden's deltoids. So <laughs> it's, uh, that's, that's what stands out because they're bigger than his head. But when <laughs> I look at that movement and I look at what's going on, I'm like, okay, so his foot is pretty much the same height or the methodology and the beats that's been used for this climber is, their foot's the same height as their hand. So their foot is taking like a huge amount of load. Then your arms having to extend across the body, but then so is your leg, your legs extending, your butt, your arms actually going into a more mechanically easy position whilst your leg is getting into a harder and harder uh, mechanical position because you have to hold tension through a toe that's getting further and further away. So rather than going, okay, let's focus on the, the thing that's closest to your head, which is the fingers and the shoulder. Um, for me, I'm like, okay, how much load can I take off the body um, in that movement of the leg getting longer and longer? Then I go, okay, what joints are involved? You've got the ankle, you've got the knee, and you've got the hip. Muscles involved around that. You've got the gastroc, you've got well, your calf muscles, your leg muscles, uh, and then you've got sort of the muscles going across the body. And because you're slightly side on, you're like, almost look like you're about to lie down sideways. You're doing all of those muscles are focused inside the leg or on the side of the body. Um, so then the training becomes, okay, can I, can I test that out based on the information I've got from other athletes? So I'll get them to do something like a Copenhagen plank, for instance, which is, uh, I think Aidan might describe it to you, where it's like a plank with one leg up and your other legs hanging underneath. Uh, I might get them to 
try and do some kind of oblique lift. Uh, I might get them to even just do something really basic like a rack pull, which is working their lower back. And if they consistently come up short on numbers compared to where I, I think they could be or would be, then it might be something to work on. And that's pretty much how I break down everyone's approach. And then you have to link that with what are they willing to do? Can you convince the climber to uh, go and work their legs loads? Um, so I think that's kind of how I approach anything to do with climbing movements and, and gaining strength. So it's never, oh, can they hang the one edge with more weight? It's what is, what is the movement that's going on here? And then work down from that. Mm. Yeah, that's that's great. For people that haven't listened to my episode with Aiden Roberts, um, I highly recommend that episode. And he did talk about this climb. Um, and it's interesting because he talked about adductor training um, with you, that that was something that he was working on, the Copenhagen plank. And I think he was even doing that like with his climbing shoe on, towing in to a hold on the climbing wall. Um, if you guys want a visual, just Google Copenhagen plank and it'll come right up. So that that makes a lot of sense. Um, I don't even know if he talked about that in the context of this climb. What I do remember is that he would he would have like really intense doms after trying that shoulder move. And one thing that helped a lot was setting a replica that, you know, it wasn't even a perfect replica of the, of the climb. It was just like the same sensation of that shoulder position. Um, and after a little bit of time on the spray wall, his home, his home wall, um, working on that replica, he had like no soreness, no issues after, after, you know, strengthening that position and then going back to the climb. Was that from your guidance too? Like, are you having him work on kind of both things, um, you know, work on the legs, try to get more weight onto the feet throughout that extended position as the leg lengthens, but also work on the shoulder as well? Or was that his own? Yeah. How do you think about that? Yeah. Yeah. It's de definitely everything all together. Like, um, pretty much when I, when I go through sort of providing Aiden's planets, um, the stuff like the, the replica sessions, he knows how to set replicas now and he's really good at that. But the, the volume on that needs discussion and the type of movements that he needs to do, he'll send me videos and I'm going, okay. Um, what I need to try and do is just hold that position a little bit longer or, uh, or eccentrically lower down onto that shoulder, just slightly slower and um, to try and do this. And can I help with tweaking that? But then I'm also, I know that his shoulders have the residual strength in that position based on having worked with him for a while. And it's now recalibrating or reteaching those muscles to work in this specific way. So replica training generally doesn't get you a huge amount stronger. What it does is it transfers the strength that's there into the positions that you're about to use them in. Mm. Because you tend not to spend, I mean, when whenever someone's on a replica, I mean, they generally spend a couple of weeks on that if they're doing um, progressive training. You don't spend 12 months working the same replica. replica. Um, like a, a um, American footballer doesn't spend all their time playing games. They do all the attributes that contribute to the game, and then they peak by practicing game case scenarios. And they'll do all the technical, tactical elements of that. And I believe the same version of that can be seen in climbing, which is the replica. So the replica gets brought in with Aiden, usually around four weeks to go, 
or you do check-ins throughout the year so you can kind of get an idea just see where you're at make sure the movement's not going to make a huge difference and then the replicas built in four weeks so you're actually transferring strength that's already there into the specific positions that are used on the climb so prior to that the i knew his shoulders were all good and i thought that we still did work on that and we still did specific training for it but the the legs and the extension we'd worked really hard on the year before but i still had a lot of faith that there was gains to be made uh, he's not got the biggest legs and uh, i thought okay let's try and push this a little bit further and see where that goes but once again the it's slightly dependent on the beta and, and the other person I was talking about um, might be potentially a little bit shorter, so it's uh, more relevant for them. Um, but that's kind of how I approach uh, any sort of climb like that. And I've got a, an athlete I'm working with that wants to get better at Aiden's style of climbing, which uh, we actually came up with a good name for it the other day, which is uh, vacuum climbing. Vacuum so trying climbing. to create a vacuum between you. Yeah, you're trying to create a vacuum between you and the wall and between your shoulder blades. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we've got, uh, I can kind of go through a, a bit of a, a tick list for that style of climbing, if, if you think that would be useful. Yeah, yeah, I, this is perfect, actually, because the next thing I was going to ask you is how often are you working on working with athletes towards very specific goals, like they want to do this climb? Um, versus how often are you helping climbers just get stronger in general? Maybe maybe it's at whatever specific style they want to work on. So this is great. Yeah, I'd love to hear more. I'd say for me personally, I'm, I'm quite lucky in uh, working with only a select group of uh, people now just because I've been so busy with general stuff in the, the business and supporting the other coaches that um, I have... I still end up having like quite a big range. So uh, a really good example of this is actually at the moment I'm in full training, winter training with uh, athletes at the moment, which effectively means I sacrifice my body for the greater good of younger, fitter athletes. And the example of that would be Toby Roberts, who uh, is a 17-year-old lad that I've worked with for four years now. And we train together a couple of times a week um and he is a competition climber he's just got his first uh senior world cup podium this year and he's an absolute beast and a and kind of joy to work with but he is very very general climbing because he needs to be good at lead and at comp boulders which is a massive spread of movements and then aiden's actually moved down to sheffield and uh he joins us for a lot of these sessions um and but he's so good on the board and he's, he's actually really good at everything because he was a comp climber but he's so good on the board and he's training very specifically for some routes next year but right now he's in a bit of a base phase so he's doing a bit more but that's like an example of two different athletes where one will specialize extremely and the other one will stay pretty much general across the entire year mm. so i'd say for me i have like a, a good mix of both all the time um, that's your question. <laughs> <clears throat> it, I mean, like, like everything with this podcast, it just brings a bunch more questions to mind, but yeah, that, <laughs> it, it does answer my question and it's interesting. Um, but yeah, let's go back to the athlete that you were just talking about that wants to become more like Aiden with the vacuum style of climbing. Um, 
And, and th- this, I, I want this to lead into kind of a more general conversation of how how do you help people find their superpowers? Um, you know, what are good goals to have for the climber that maybe doesn't want to super specialize towards one project right now? They just want to become better. They want to learn how to use their bodies better. Um, so I, I want to lead into that, but let's let's start with this example. I think this is a great place to start. So, um, so the athlete I'm working with, who um, I haven't checked him, so I won't name him, but he's he's an amazing, amazing guy, like so so psyched and passionate. And he was climbing a um, in quite a powerful, slappy style in terms of uh, in terms of the problems he was trying to boulder. Um, and we're doing big moves, big heel hooks. And I remember on our initial discussion, um, talking about the style of climber he was, and it quickly became apparent that he had gone into the narrative of this style of climber and he really enjoyed it. So that's brilliant, like really psyched going for some of those climbs. But um, there was no real reason why we didn't know whether actually the complete opposite style which would be a kind of like this vacuum style wasn't couldn't be a superpower it might have been a superpower it was untested so sometimes it takes us completely flipping things on its head and testing out the waters to actually see if this works and what often happens is what i find is um like something will lead to that catalyzing that change um one is injury Unfortunately, like uh, in this case, there was an injury which stopped heels for a while. Um, And then often another one is that the formula that people have been using, and this is what happens with a lot of professional climbers that come to work with me, they've used a formula and a certain style for a long time, and it's got more and more diminishing returns. So it's quite a good time to test out the waters elsewhere. So with this vacuum style for, for Aiden, and climbing like Aiden, you go, okay, what movements is he actually doing? I mean, if you look at his shoulders when he's climbing, he gets a lot of extension um, in his upper back. So he's getting his chest to the wall. He's creating that vacuum. He's also really good at his hips in that position and, and creating tension through his toes. So, okay, the lower body must be involved. The lower back, sorry, must be involved. Like there's a lot of tension through the muscle back, uh, lower back. And if you watch someone climb with their top off, and you see a lot of tone in the muscle, that's usually a good sign that it's working pretty hard. And a really nice anecdote um, and a good reminder for me on this is rack pulls are a really good thing for developing that because you don't have the complications of um, technique of a full deadlift. You don't get a climber's deadlift, which effectively is, um, sorry to say the words, but it's a bit like a, a slut drop dance move where... <laughs> The, uh, the legs straighten first and then the lower back does the entire lift because you don't displace any of the baha with the with the legs. You just kind of do the upper part. So what, what is that? It's like the, well. the pop lock and drop it or something like that from the from the movies. Yeah, yeah, totally. Exactly, exactly. And it's, it's so funny the amount of times I see people, climbers that are restricted in deadlift and feel like it's bad for them. But it's only because their legs can't get the bar off the ground initially. But say with the rat pulls, a great exercise if you want to climb this vacuum style. Aiden pretty much doesn't train that. I don't get him doing that huge amount. And he's done very little of it because I could see when I tested him ages ago, I saw it was a good attribute. 
He came back from Alfane on that trip and his rap pool was just as good or better than it was when he was conditioning more often mm. because he was using it so much in Switzerland. Therefore, it's an attribute that works in that style of climbing and is being used a lot. So in future, if I see a drop, I'll bring it back in for him. Or if it's uh, I feel like he needs even more of it, I might use it. But the rest of the time, I won't, I won't mind too much because his style automatically does that. For people that are trying to transfer into that vacuum style, it is a movement that's really useful. So rat pulls one. Copenhagen planks, another really good one. You can manipulate that to start bending your legs slightly, putting a climbing shoe on using just your big toe. And that creates like tension in the adductors. You can even shove a weight plate on the side of your body uh, to create more load there. So it's all about being able to extend into a position and then hold your toe on the wall and really like key in with a toe at a distance. And that's a really key attribute of this style of climbing. Um, another one is shoulder rotations. So once again, uh, you've got to be able to use the rotator cuffs and stabilize with the rotator cuffs when you're trying to suck your chest into the wall. So seated shoulder rotation, you can look that up on Google as well with a dumbbell. It's pretty much working a range you can do in a seated position or lying down on your front and it's working your rotator cuff. And once again, um, if you look at the people that are really good at that style, Aiden, really good at that style. He came back from this Alphane trip and he'd improved at that. He hadn't done any of it for two months mm. and he got stronger. And if people want some basic numbers, which go and try this at home, it, uh, not with the actual weight, but um, he's doing like hypertrophy sets with 20 kilos in that position, which is absolutely outrageous. I mean, there'll be a lot of people out there that will go and try and do 10 reps of this and will struggle to do it with four kilos, who are really good climbers. I've worked with 8B climbers that struggle with four kilos. What's the name of the um, exercise? If you look for seated shoulder rotations. Okay. Seated shoulder so, rotations. So uh, I think I'll, I, I can do a little on video for yeah. anyone that will see it afterwards. Is your, you've got your sitter down on the ground. You've got your foot close to your body and your knee pointing up to the ceiling and your elbows rested on your knee. So your elbows like You've pivoting your, on the top of your knee. Okay. Yeah. And you're putting your hand from the ceiling towards, uh, towards your foot and you're doing full rotations. And so something, a number that might people might find interesting. If I see an athlete that can't do 10 reps of that with five kilos, I'm like, okay, alarm bell, let's sort that out. If you can do 10 kilos and more, you're doing really, really well. That's like a good level. If you're doing 15 kilos or more, superpower. And yeah, that's something you do really, really well at. You don't need to either train it much more or keep it up. But the vacuum style, that is really, really relevant to that because it effectively strengthens the position where you're trying to pull your body into the wall and provide force going out the wall and body into the wall. Mm. Um, can I, can on I... top of that, there's... A yeah, can I chime in? It watching you do that, it's for people listening that aren't seeing the video. Um, it's basically training the shoulder's ability to do the opposite of winging, of like chicken winging. Um, so you're you're like retracting yeah. your shoulder back and down so that your elbow and your um and your fist, your hand are kind of like in a vertical plane. So you're like keeping 
the chest in really close to the wall when your arm is out to the side holding like a crimp or something. I don't know if that was helpful, but. Yeah, that that's it. That's exactly it. And it's, you've got all these muscles that are really good at pulling the opposite way. And a lot of competition or indoor climbers now are really strong at compressing. But we're all on these big blobby holds and we like to, we're on steep terrain. So you're, if you imagine you're on like a steep board, your hands are always in front of your body, right? So like your hands are probably going to be somewhere between 45 degrees out to the side, uh, like diagonally from your shoulders to right in front of your body. So your rotator cuff, the muscles that are responsible for that kind of external movement, are always slightly stretched. And they're usually going to be stabilizing in a stretched position, but all your chest, your lats, uh, your biceps are all just pulling in all the time. So then you go outside and you say you go to Estes Park and you're on some ratty crimps on like a, you know, 20, 20 degree wall and you're trying to get your body as close to the wall as possible. You've not developed strength in that range anymore. So, and if you watch, uh, like I climbed with Adam yesterday and we were doing comp blocks uh, because we were, we were there to sort of focus on Toby's training and we were doing these movements and he was still getting the vacuum on, on these massive comp blocks, like pressy movements. And he was just sucking into the wall so closely with his shoulders. But because that was his superpower, he was able to use it on all different styles of climbing. And I think a lot of people could do well developing that. Um, and if you are interested in becoming better at that, that's a kind of a good exercise. Mm. Um, I, can keep, I can keep going with the training with the vacuum if you want, but uh, they're, they're like some key attributes at least. Yeah, no, that's really helpful. Let's let's pause there and um, and kind of zoom back out again because I I don't really have a sense of like how many people, what percentage of climbers this would be helpful for. Um, so I, I think something that would be generally really helpful to hear your thoughts on is how to identify our superpowers as climbers and how you think about that as a coach um, in this. Um, in this kind of climber paradigm, I don't know if this is a personal paradigm that I have. This this could just turn into a therapy session. We'll see what happens. But, um, <laughs> you know, I've always been so obsessed with weaknesses. Like, I have to get better at my weaknesses. I want to be a well-rounded climber. I want to be able, you know, I, I'm basically just focused on bouldering and sport climbing. But within those two things, I kind of want to be able to do it all. Or at least that's how I've been for most of my climbing life. I've been climbing for 15 years. Um and it's only in the last few years that I've really gotten more curious about what is it that I'm naturally good at? What would it look like to double down on those things? And is I feel really pulled in these kind of two diametrically opposed directions. Um, and I'm just curious how you think about that or talk about that with new clients. You know, do you encourage people to lean into their superpowers? And um, like this athlete that you talked about who... Um, you know, was seeking out squeezy, powerful compression boulders. And you're like, actually, I think you could be really good at this other style of crimpy, you know, dialed, like, um, crimpy static locked off, like really tight to the wall sort of style. Um, and of course, you know, you said that they had an injury, so it just made sense to kind of do that pivot. But what are you finding with clients? Like, are people getting more, I mean, I'm almost talking more about like the emotional and psychology, like psychological side of, of the climbing experience at this point, are people getting more like more satisfaction out of their climbing when they 
go in this other direction and kind of lean into their superpowers and explore that um, versus trying to be the climber that can do it all? Does it totally depend on the person? How, how do you have some of those conversations with, with clients? I think, I think you're right in saying it's very, very much led by the emotional, psychological elements of, of the makeup of the person and, and making that decision. I would say satisfaction is uh, mixed for each person, but it's also mixed depending on the time of year, like what stage they're at, what they've just done. Um, and I think the key thing is to have very blunt conversations about these things and not kind of pussyfoot around, you know, key like key motivators and what's really going to make a difference. Um, I think that's one thing that I've really, really learned um, to be able to have these sort of blunt conversations because I'm here to effectively make the climber enjoy or help the climber enjoy climbing more, whether they are professional or not, because I want them to be satisfied with the service that I provide. So if they need me to kick them in the ass because they've said about trying something harder, then I will be that person. But then also if they need to be pushed away from being overly focused, that's also the key. But I guess one thing I'd say that I think helped me a lot and I think people might find useful to hear is a lot of the climbers that are really, really good and really elite have used the same formula and the same uh, focus for themselves for a very, very long time. And there's a lot of climbers out there that are people that you're seeing in media and the ones that you really look up to, they will flat out refuse to do anything that they are not comfortable with or confident doing or enjoy doing. And I think a lot of the time, like, like you've experienced yourself and I have as well in the past, is we're kind of drawn to thinking, oh, I must do this. I'm not like, it's part of the makeup, it's part of the attributes. I have to train this rather than going, do you know what? I just hate it. I don't want to do it. Uh, that's not for me. I'm going to enjoy myself more and I'm going to have more buy-in by doing these other things. And through working with these athletes over the years, I've really learned the, the power of kind of that nocebo effect. If someone's doing something that they don't believe in or don't really want to do, even if it's the best training in the world, it's not going to work because the intent's not there so i guess to find your superpower really comes down to really understanding where your your motivation is and what kind of gets you up and gets you driving and gets you making the most of sessions and that can be even something like um i think we discussed this before so for me personally um i would perform best on steeper climbing uh barely kind of power endurance style moves which aren't fully reliant on fingers but also mean you have to use them a bit and use a lot of lower body heel hooks and so on and i've barely done any of that climbing in the last few years because my the biggest thing that makes a difference to me is partnerships and who i'm climbing with sharing the journey um and i've spent the last year doing trad climbing effectively because i have a great time climbing with my um my partner maddie and I prioritize that over anything else because it gets me psyched. I'm sharing the journey with her and she doesn't enjoy that style as much. And she still does it for periods of the year. And we do it for sections of the year. The burly style? But, well, the burly style, yeah. Got it. Okay. Uh, but because she's had a few 
injuries, we've kind of avoided that a bit. Um, but that's certainly okay. Like um, I would, I could knuckle down on that and I could go and find other partners and I could climb that style all the time and go and really focus in on it. But I just know my, I know who I am and I know my motivation will wane because I'll be going, oh, right, she's, she's gone off and done this other really cool thing. Oh, I kind of want to be part of that journey as well. So for me, the, the partnerships and the stuff like, say, well, I've had the same with Tom and other people in the past means a bigger difference. So when you look at what really motivates you and say for yourself, working weaknesses, that might actually be a bit of a superpower of yours because you're inherently attracted to improvement and mm. You know, you're curious by working on weaknesses and testing the waters and finding out what's what's good and bad. And maybe um, it's definitely worth not uh, disregarding that kind of ability. Like that could just be one of your superpowers. You are, you have the ability to be curious enough to be an all-round climber and not scared of failure. And that means that you might be able to go to any bouldering area in the world and climb on all different styles, which is amazing. And I think is something that should be, uh, you could be proud of rather than you might not be the sort of person who, and I'm totally guessing here. I'm not guessing about you. I'm just sort of spitballing, but yeah. um, you might not be the person who wants to spend a year on one problem and just totally focus on that because, and you're bothered about micro gains and, and detail and all of that, because actually you just don't really enjoy that as much. So when you're finding your superpower, you've got to find what really works for you. And a phrase that I I found really useful um, when I've worked with athletes is um, there's a, a really good neuroscientist called uh, Huberman who does some amazing podcasts, really good detailed stuff. And um, he uses the phrase around habits to do with limbic friction, which is if you've got greater limbic friction, it's something that takes you more effort to overcome. And it takes you more effort to get the thing done all the time. And this could be like, habit in the daytime it could be uh something a behavior that you're trying to change so a superpower for me is often something that comes with lower limbic friction where you'll you find it easier to progress with you find it easier to be motivated to do and you find it naturally is what you your behavior pattern goes towards um for the long term and that might change but that's kind of the definition of me like deciding a superpower for an athlete is working out, um, those kind of hands. Thanks for all that. That's super interesting. I, I, that gives me, um, that gives me some things to reflect on actually, like hearing you describe how my superpower could be working on weaknesses that, that may be true. Um, and I'm just kind of thinking out loud here, but something that I definitely have a t strong tendency to do, that's probably not the healthiest thing is I still buy into this idea that I have to suffer to get better. Um, and so I'll actively seek out things and I do this less often now, but for years I would actively seek out things that I did not like doing because I thought that was the key to becoming the climber that I wanted to be. And I was just forcing it all the time. Um, and it's been such a treat to, uh, in the last couple of years to kind of think more about like, what do I actually feel inspired by? What do I actually want to do? And, I don't know why it took me so long to think about things that way, but to give myself permission, like, no, it's okay to double and triple down on the things that you like doing in climbing. You don't have to constantly be 
beating your head against the wall and, and, and tackling these things that feel like suffering, that feel like a training montage in a movie, you know? <laughs> um, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's really funny, isn't it? And it's, um, the same thing again there. Like maybe it's just a different phase for you. Like, mm. I mean, if you look at, um, I'm pretty sure, like I've heard so many athletes say this and, um, probably the more sort of famous athletes that you might have heard say this, people like Jonathan Segrist, who said about, he gets on the thing that he doesn't want to do. And he's like, oh man, I have to get on that. And I remember talking to Alex Honnold, same thing. He gets on the thing that he's most scared of or doesn't really want to do because he knows it's good for him. But then they both specialize. They both focus on what they're really good at. And then you've got to decide like how far you want to go that way. Um, the one thing I really learned from Tom um, Randall was uh, he is the man who knows how to, if you're getting specific and you want to improve at a very specific thing because you've realized you enjoy that and that's where you want to go. One, you've got to... Uh, You've got to go with it and you know you've got to fully commit and you've got to really focus on that uh because it's once again it's that whole nocebo effect if you're whole, if you want to get specific and try and enjoy that process but you're holding on to uh the whole round of you then it's not going to work but the way i always see it with tom is that's a guy who knows how to pass an exam and if you imagine like we're at school and <laughs> You know, like we get taught this huge curriculum of stuff, but you know the, the, the questions in the exam are only going to be on a few things. Tom knows how to put the money on a few different topics, become experts at that. And then he, he puts all his weight into that focus and becomes really, really good at it. He doesn't spend all his time trying to be good at everything in the hopes that he can have this broad spectrum of knowledge. He's going, look, I'm going to focus on attending this exam and I'm going to put all my effort into learning those few key bits of material and I'm going to knuckle down on it. And if that's in the exam, then I'm going to excel. And say I end up getting like, some of the questions that aren't in my wheelhouse, then I'm still going to try and steer all of those questions towards the bits that I know. And a really good example of that is if you ever go two for climbing with him and you see him putting his hands in uh, jams and his foot crap, um, beating jams the whole time, he's taking like this burly style of climbing and just using what he knows best in different fields. Um, but don't get me wrong, like you go out bouldering with him and he's, um, yeah, he's pretty crap. He's, uh, he's not the strongest boulder, uh, but he's okay with that. I mean, bouldering is just fun for him. What he's knuckled down on and the exam he wants to pass is the thing that he's put all his energy into. So figure out what you need to do in that specific genre, the movement, the joint muscle action, and then looking at the air energy systems are involved like figure out the length of the route and go okay if i want to try and specify and knuckle down okay that's the only thing that i'm going to put any uh, weight on or i'm going to put maybe not precious the right word but any value on should be that exam and, and that type of climbing the rest of the time you need to just let go of the ego and be like okay i'm not this type of climber i've got to buy into the narrative of the specificity um and I think that like that narrative and personal kind of buy-in makes you go so much further and it's exactly the same, but not many people can do that. I think, I think it is hard to do. And particularly if you've not got a lot of climbing experience, um, sometimes that doesn't work for you because you keep 
seeing everything else going out there and you you kind of want to have a taste of everything which is also great that's absolutely fine that's effectively what i do um so you just gotta work it if it works for you but if you do want to specify that's that's the way well, it's, it's really interesting to hear you say all that. I love the passing the test analogy. I just, it makes me think of, you know, Century Crack and then um, him and going doing Cobra Crack and Squamish and just how specific his training was for each of those things. So I can see what you're saying. But there there's two sides to it. Like on one hand, you know, that level of specificity and focus for a goal at the exclusion of trying to be able to collect like a wide wider range of, of potential skills and strengths you know, that's one strategy for sending hard things. But at the same time, Tom has amassed such amazing skill at those things that he can then apply it to tons of other climbing scenarios like the Tufa example, right? And that makes me think of what you said with Aiden, where he is so good at his style of climbing that he can apply it to slopey comp boulders in the gym, you know, um, and, and continue to do that. And I think that's kind of what I'm realizing now, because I've almost come full circle, like early in my climbing, I climbed in Leavenworth, which for people listening is um, very featurey granite climbing. I mean, there are crimp lines there, but for the most part, you're squeezing, you're, you know, you're slapping, you're um, compressing, you're using a lot of crossbody tension with heel hooks and things. And I, you know, I started, started climbing at 18 years old and I had muscle and I didn't have strong fingers. So I was able to excel at that. But it also kept my fingers from getting stronger because um, I always found ways around that. And, you know, realizing that made me get obsessed with the other thing, which is like, no, I want to be, you know, a quote, normal climber who can just pull on holds with my fingers. And now I've kind of come full circle where I'm like, man, I, I let go of my superpower in pursuit of being the type of climber that I always wanted to be because I sucked at that style. And what I'm realizing, I think more these days is I can combine them. You know, I can work on the weaknesses and get some of the finger strength, but then I do have really strong um, shoulders and I have pretty strong compression, cross body tension, and I'm pretty good at heel hooks. And I can turn a lot of moves and cruxes and, and, and climbs um, into my style to some extent and get around you know, it's, it happens all the time where I do like a more powerful move to skip the tiny crappy hold, you know? Um, so, so that's something that's interesting too. It's like kind of a uh, specialization in a way, but then it's really just doubling down on the things that you're good at. And then you have this amazing toolkit that you can apply to, to a, a wide variety of different challenges. Um, yeah. Anyway, uh, I, I, <laughs> I, I want to, um, I want to take a step back for a second and ask you about some of the exercises that you work on with clients that might surprise people who are listening. And this goes back to the lattice assessment and, you know, from the outside seeming, it seems like you guys are really focused on the forearm and finger strength. Um, but then we were talking about Aiden's style and he's someone who from the outside looking in appears to have some of the strongest fingers in the world, but you know, you listed like the three key exercises to work on to get better at that style. And it was like adductors, rack pulls and shoulder rotations. And none of those have anything to do with fingers. So that's really interesting to me. Um, what are some of the other things like maybe, maybe moving outside of just Aiden's style, what are some of the other strengthening 
movements, exercises that you've seen make a big difference for clients that would surprise people listening? Um, so a couple of key key things that I, I see a lot is, again, it's kind of like trying to find uh, maybe the movement pattern you're good and bad, good and bad at actually. So good example of this is if you are a climber that tends to be quite good. Um, and when I watch like videos of a client coming in or, you know, the style of climbing they're doing, then they're really good in like a wider box. And by that, I mean, like when the hand holds a shoulder width or wider apart, you know, like if you, you grab a hold, you get the lat involved and you feel quite comfortable in a Gaston position. But then if you're on like a crimp line, which is in front of your face, or you've got to like roll over um, and you've got to cross over or do anything that you feel really tight and stiff or maybe even weak. Um, you're, then, just, you're describing me right now, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So th this is good. This is good. Uh, so say like, um, I imagine the difference for you, if you've got like a line of crimps and it's, uh, you know, one and a half times shoulder width, the hands and feet all the way up, you can really like get that lat involved and get your body close to the wall. If you put them like narrow than shoulder width, you feel like you can barely hang on and you have to flip between holds and squirm up. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I feel uh, like my my chest and my back is like too far away from the wall and in like too much counterweight pulling me backwards if my hands are right in front of me or if I have to do like a like a tight cross through movement. Um right in front of my chest that feels yeah that, i just feel like i don't have space it feels really um bunchy and and difficult yeah 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 so um so a couple of like things that i would i would look at is um and i think i think i, li I listened to okay, most of the the dan one but like if i ever look at your hand at the moment you put up to to the screen i don't know if you're they like you, your pinky's not like too short, but it's not too long either. A big thing for that is if the holds are uh, relatively close in front of your body, like the high angle crimping stuff's really good and working on the pinkies for sure. Um, if you can keep them on, but when you're like a slightly more muscular climber and you feel like this closed in space, what often happens is you end up like tilting your hands off and you feel like by the time you've reached the next hold, your lower hand can't really do much and you're almost struggling to hold on. So fingers wise, the ring finger, I actually think plays a massive role in this um, and being strong without that pinky on. So again, front three, half crimp or high angle makes a massive difference and getting into the full crimp on front three. Um, it means that your scope for where your elbows can be has increased without twisting yourself off the wall effectively. Hmm. So, and then what I do is I go, okay, so now in that bit in front of your body, when your hands are like above your head, I'm like, okay, your lats, they are going to be involved and you put your biceps that like, they're not going to be able to activate very much because your palms are facing forward and you will be pulling in, but those, those biceps can't do as much. So what can do a lot is your extensors and your uh, brachioradialis on the side of your body. So hammer curls in place uh, is a really good exercise. And if you do a lot more hammer curls, then it's going to, in front of the body, that's going to be a lot better at doing pulling motion in front of the body and close to the body. So what I've found is a lot of people that are good at one-arm pull-ups and 
keeping like really straight onto the bar rather than twisting underneath it. And they're really good at when the, the holes are in front of the body tend to be quite good at stuff like hammer curls and vice versa when I'm taking someone who's not good at that and use an exercise like hammer curls, which is effectively a bicep curl with your palms facing down the whole time. It tends to make quite a big difference at that position. Um, then I'd be looking at something like, uh, you know, trying to do a low row position as well. So close to the body rather than allowing the shoulders to go out to the side and the elbow go around the side. If you do that sort of motion closer towards the body, then that's going to mean that you can suck in with the lower traps and the deep lats, like low down on your spine. And a good way of doing it is if you do a low row, which is effectively bending over on a bench, picking up a dumbbell and like lifting it up to your belly button. If you tilt your body up uh, closer towards 45 degrees, 50 degrees, so you're more upright, and you do the same position, but you suck it in towards your hip and you try and get your elbow around the back. That tends to be something that's a lot more applicable than this kind of style of motion uh, because you're bringing your body close to the wall by keeping your hands close to the wall. And that there are a couple of exercises which I tend to find like good to reduce in the box size as well. And then lastly is um, making sure again that rotator cuff, you've got like a really good range in front of the body. So crossovers, um, I'm like, uh, so I su suffer with this as well. I've recently failed on a project and by the end of the trip, I was feeling, I, I effectively, I was starting to strain my supraspinatus, which is part of the rotator cuff. And if you strain it, you actually feel it in the middle of your deltoid. And it feels like a sharp pain in the middle of your deltoid, but actually a lot of the time it's your supraspinatus. So if you're crossing over, and you're doing all these crossover motions and it's really close to the body and you feel like, God, I don't think my chest is very big, but for some reason I can't get around it. Then, and your shoulder starts hurting. A lot of the time it might be a supraspinator strain. And an exercise for doing that is um, doing uh, front raises or uh, lying down on your side on the bench and spinning the dumbbell towards the ceiling. So it's kind of like, or you can do a thread the needle, which is in like a plank position and you pass the dumbbell under one arm mm. and it twists towards the ceiling again. Um, or you can do um, empty bean cans, which is thumb downwards in front of the body, and then lifting the arm in front of your face, holding a dumbbell as well. So that's going to work to not only strengthen that muscle, but strengthen it in the new range that you're trying to develop. Hopefully uh, that... Uh, there was a lot of uh, exercises with without video, so yeah, yeah. If yeah. you have a look at any of those, they'll uh, that that's like a couple of key movements which I found really useful for that that sort of climbing. Can you give me just the names of those exercises one more time? Uh, so we've got hammer curl, hammer which curl, is good more for the arms. Uh, you've got like the variant on the low row, which is a bit more upright. Uh, you've got um, I think you can call it empty beam hand lifts so like front raises in front of the body with your thumb downwards um but it's front dumbbell raises and then with your arms um, straight for that threading one? the needle yeah okay. yeah yeah and then thread the needle which is a good sort of plank based exercise and most of those are either developing slightly smaller muscle groups which are have to be more used when you can't get the lats and biceps and stuff involved as much and or uh, work a new range in the muscles which are already developed and great at working but they hate being in that length and range and extending mm -hmm. 
Awesome. Thank you. That, that's, uh, that's, this is fun. I mean, in all these conversations about training for climbing, um, I think everything you've talked about today is a new exercise to me that I've never really tried before. So that's, that's fun. Um, that's interesting. I'm curious, are there any global recommendations for, for climbers that you have as far as, um, strength movements to incorporate that, that maybe aren't obvious that people are missing? What comes to top of mind for you? Uh, so key things I think for all climbers are uh, one is working your upper traps. So your scapula works. Um, so your muscles tend to work in force couples. So a movement around a joint, uh, there'll be multiple muscles involved generally, and they need to work uh, together to create a smooth movement or a powerful movement or a strong movement. And what I've started to notice with climbers climbing on steeper terrain more and more is they're neglecting the upper trap muscles. So they're the ones that are responsible for you actually standing up, shrugging your shoulders towards your ears um, and up and backwards as well. And if a, any climber tends to start having, sort of start feeling like their neck is getting sore or um, they're starting to have shoulder issues, it's not always the case, but I personally, start using this exercise a lot and i tend to get a lot of climbers doing it throughout the base phase as well and then they drop it when we get more specific and that is uh leaning shoulder shrugs so you just lean to one side holding on to a, a fixed object and you're doing that same shrugging motion so shoulder really low down holding a dumbbell now you're trying to reach your ear and then shove it back slightly just to get the full range and then back down and that or sort of shoulder presses is something I use a lot with athletes in a base phase. And if I see that they're particularly weak um, doing that motion, then I'll get them to use that quite a lot. And it just seems to, it seems to help shoulder health a lot. And it also helps people feel stronger in their back muscles when they're climbing because it's helping support this force couple and making sure that the whole back is being activated and not just part of the back. So that's, that's one example. Um, another one, which I think slightly different again, um, is looking at dorsiflexion of the ankle. I think, uh, modern footwear and spending too much time in really tight boots and standing on small footholds means that our ankles are generally getting quite stiff and, um, dorsiflexion is effectively when you are lifting your toes towards your knees. So this would and be like a if you want pulling on a toe hook position. Yeah, so that's the that's the dorsiflexion uh, position in terms of like the positioning of the foot, plantar flexions when you're pushing downwards. But I guess the strengthening that I would do, well, I'd increase the range of the dorsiflexion so that you can. Um, make sure that your heels can be dropped, which makes a massive difference on slopers, but also makes a huge difference on a lot of tensiony style climbs where you're having to push really hard into the hold. But then you can't let your heel rise too much because the foot skids up, skids up. So you increase the range of that dorsiflexion. But then by adding weight to calf raises and going through a full range of motion, so getting your toes on the edge of a step, like a normal step in your house, and doing one leg calf raises for a full range or adding weight to it, that creates a lot of strength and stability. Being able to push off that foot 
also hold tension on slopey footholds if you're interested in slab climbing it's an absolute must um and it makes a huge difference so the best climbers that i work with have a huge dorsiflexion uh, ability in terms mm. of the range of motion they can do and create tension in if you want to the the king of that example is um people like charles albert or tomorrow narasaki and um, they're amazing like watch them standing in slopes on volumes and stuff and their heels are so low um, a good little test to see if you um, are good at that or bad at that is, and it's there's a bit of variant on this, but I'll just throw some random, I'll, I'll throw some numbers out there so people can try at home, is a knee-to-wall test. So you're pretty much standing near a wall. You move your foot slightly further away, pointing directly at the wall, uh, toes towards the wall, and you've got to try and touch your knee against the wall. So you kind of like bend forward, one leg behind, touch your knee against the wall. And then you slide your foot slightly further back, so your toes are further away, and then you touch your knee against the wall. 15 centimetres and above is good. Anything mm. less than that, or 10 to 15 centimetres, I'd be going, okay, this could be an attribute that would be useful to work on, and there'll be a lot of people that aren't good at that. Less than 10 centimetres would be definitely something to work on. Mm. And don't get me wrong, I've seen very, very good climbers that can't do this, and um so i think dave mcleod is a good example of something really tight ankles but he has broken both of them so <laughs> he's limited in that range mm-hmm. but um it's an attribute that it keeps coming up more and more in the athletes that i've worked with that are really really good and i think it's something that most people don't tend to think about too much that's great i'm just doing a conversion for for our uh, american listeners so 15 centimeters is a about six inches, just under six inches. Um, Ten centimeters is just under four inches. So if your if your foot if the tip of your toe ends up more than six inches away from the wall and you can still touch your knee, that's great. And if you're closer to four, definitely something to work on. Um, I'm like doing it. I'm like standing at my at my at my bed. Um, I use my bed as a standing desk for people listening, and I'm doing it right now against my cabinet. And I think I need to work on it. <laughs> it's not awful, but I'm like, yeah, that's probably that's probably five inches or less. Um, just looking down, but I'll measure it later. That's interesting. Do you um something? It's also what you're talking about is really helpful for knee bar strength too, um, and just like having a wider range of knee bars that you can use if you have more dor- uh, dorsiflexion. Um, Something I've thought about, though, is if you open up the range of your ankle, do you lose any do you lose any strength when it comes to just like standing on small footholds for a really long time? I think I almost like rely on that tightness, um, you know, which probably isn't great. But any thoughts on that? Um, potentially, yeah. I mean, so one, you can definitely build up strength in the full range. Uh, if you've seen martial artists being able to hold themselves up with both feet on chairs and in box splits you can build you can build the maximum strength in there but i do get that you get free strength through tension and you get free strength endurance through through tension um i had a really funny example of this i've just um done a sports massage course recently and i had my forearms pummeled for for a couple of days on this course and um, then i went and climbed on the board did a thorough warm-up and i felt like floppy jelly because all the residual tension that i built mm-hmm. up in these big training days are uh, gone but the one thing i would say is 
uh, on like long style climbs with smaller edges, you actually learn to use your feet slightly differently. And a lot of the climbers that I found that I've climbed with who are really, really good on slabs and really technical terrain have amazing dorsiflexion. Mm. And I'm talking like uh, slate climbing in North Wales uh, or like crack climbing or really technical traditional climbing where you're on your feet for 40, 50 minutes or plus. I mean, I mean that's quite a short time really for track. Um, but they tend to have really, really good dorsiflexion. And um, it's kind of crazy that they they can still hold the tension there. But actually, when you watch them do it, they're just in a slightly different range. And they're probably finding it easier to keep their heels lower, which actually weights the foothold slightly differently rather than, I don't know if you've had it where you're on a route and you're starting to get tired and you're standing on a small edge. And rather than keeping your heel low because it's comfortable to do that, all your muscles are doing this uh, multiple contraction, which is normal when you're trying really hard. And you start finding yourself drifting higher and higher up on your tiptoe mm. and you're starting to get tense rather than just staying low. So that residual tension actually can bite you in the bum and, and cause a, uh, an effect where you're actually using up more energy. And we will be right back. This episode is brought to you by Green Chef. It's a new year, and whether or not you're the type of person who sets New Year's resolutions, I'm guessing that many of you have the intention of eating healthy in 2023. Well, you're all in luck because Green Chef is here to help. Green Chef is the number one meal kit for eating well, regardless of your personal lifestyle. Whether you prefer keto, paleo, vegan, vegetarian, Mediterranean, or gluten-free foods, Green Chef has tasty meals just for you and your way of eating. In 2023, help yourself to delicious, convenient recipes that support your healthy lifestyle, save yourself a bunch of time on meal prep, and then put that time you saved toward your climbing goals. The thing that I personally love most about Green Chef is that their recipes feature organic produce and sustainably sourced ingredients. That means that you get the convenience of a meal kit service without compromising on food quality. And for me personally, eating quality food is the most important thing that I do to feel good. I really think it makes a difference. Right now, my dear listeners, Green Chef is offering you guys 60% off and free shipping. Go to greenchef.com slash nugget60 and use code nugget60 to get 60% off plus free shipping. Once again, that's greenchef.com slash nugget60 and code nugget60 to get 60% off plus free shipping. Green Chef, the number one meal kit for eating well. This episode is also brought to you by Athletic Greens. We've got a nice little theme going here for this week's sponsors. Athletic Greens has become one of my favorite parts of my morning routine. This morning, I woke up, threw on a podcast, and I added a scoop of Athletic Greens to a bottle of water, shook it up, and I sipped on that while I was making my coffee, and I loved it. It's super refreshing. It tastes good. There's some fruit extracts and stevia in there to make it tasty. And I look forward to it every morning almost as much as that first cup of coffee, which for me is saying a hell of a lot. But why do I take it aside from it tasting good? 
Well, here's the deal. One scoop of Athletic Greens has 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole foods-sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. I think of it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I like to eat whole foods, quality foods when it comes to my nutrition, but it can be really hard to get fresh fruits and veggies, not to mention organic, when you travel to some of these remote climbing areas. If I take Athletic Greens in the morning, I know I'm covered, and I love that feeling. To make your decision easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com nugget. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash nugget to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. And now back to the show. I do have one more exercise that I would like everybody at home to do, if that's good to go through. Yeah, let's do it. So the the exercise which I want every climber out there to to do and have a go at, um, partly because it just feels bloody good, it's just so nice to do, is go and lie on a like a weightlifting bench or stack a load of pillows up under your body, so between your bum and your uh, head and lying on your back. Uh, it's got to be pretty high off the ground. Then you can hold two weights you can do it without weights as well it's quite nice with weights between like one and five kilos five is quite heavy for this what you're going to do is start with your hands near your knees off the bench and you're going to let them lower down towards the ground and then you're going to slowly keep your arms pretty much straight lift your arms all the way so that two dumbbells are touching at the top mm. and you're going to keep your arms not at the bottom of the range but most of the range down so you're going to really stretch out your chest your shoulders your deltoids and your lats at the top and repeat that sort of you know about eight times and do a couple of sets of that try and do that before one of your next sessions or when you're working at a desk or when you're working podcasting in the van or something like that it's it feels so good for your body and i think that whole cross-section of your the front of your body starts to get tighter. And this movement not only increases the range and loosens you up just for the day, but if you start adding weight to that, it develops more strength and stability in that range. Um, and you can hold positions, you can like hold the dumbbells slightly higher up. And it's just something I get a load of the climbers I work with doing this. I get them, if anyone complains about tightness in their traps their neck the shoulders once again this isn't like the answer but it's something that can relieve a lot of tension immediately and if you really focus on straightening your arms it hits your biceps if you let your arms drift up slowly and sink down when they're out in a t-shape it really hits like set put certain section of the chest the above your head if you let them drop down and really squeeze your elbows together it gets your lats and i think if if everyone did that every day just a couple of times a couple of sets of eight reps every day i guarantee you'll be generally healthier not many people would benefit from that and it's not going to do you any harm so uh yeah there's another another exercise that i think is quite good as a, as a generic one that's awesome yeah i've never heard of that either i mean it's it's interesting because it's really some it's really similar to 
one of the exercises I've been doing in PT actually for carpal tunnel, um, just to open everything up. And this is something that Matt Hayliger encouraged me to do. I bought a long foam, uh, foam roller. So I'm like laying on a foam roller and opening the chest and just not using a weight, but just having my arms kind of in a snow angel position, um, just at body weight. But yeah, I've, I've never heard of that or tried that on a higher elevated platform, like a, like a weightlifting bench, um, with weight added. That's interesting. So yeah, I'll, I'll have to try that out. Yeah. It's, um, surprisingly satisfying the, the <laughs> feeling you get. I would say the only people that may just not feel a difference or maybe shouldn't do this are maybe those who are, um, have really low muscle mass and very lax joints. But I would say if you just hold the dumbbells to a, an okay range and you do the same thing, what you're going to do is develop strength and stability in that, that range anyway, which is still good for you. So it's just, um, it's just something which I, like you say, it opens up, make sure that your nerves are being stretched. If you're, if you're trying to do nerve glides, it kind of like incorporates a couple of different things. And um, I think there's so many things that we can do without much effort. Like if you're an office worker, I know that a large portion of the listeners might be working in offices or in desk jobs. You can maybe not lie on the desk to this, but you can definitely do this in some format in the office. You can go and step on some stairs and do some uh, dorsiflexion for your body. Uh, you can do some um, shoulder rotation with very, very little weight or rucksack. Uh, weight or rucksack. Um, so if you just add those into the day, it's like, it's effectively getting all your conditioning, all your health-based stuff out of the way so you can enjoy your climbing sessions more and then not do all these things at the end when you're already feeling quite tired and the focus isn't there. Mm. Yeah, that's great. Something maybe to touch on with this, and and this is because this is something I was confused about for years and years in my own training. Can Could you talk about the value of doing things like this really consistently over time with low weights and at an intensity that doesn't necessarily feel like training, if that makes sense. You know, because for me, I, I I almost felt like it was only worth trying exercises if I was dedicating like a six-week block to them and I had a plan and I had reps and sets and I had, you know, weights that I was trying to progress. I was, it was always progression. It, it was always like trying to get as strong as possible at these sorts of things. And I think I undervalued the kind of, uh, the value of like these kind of staples, these day in, day out, just almost like a health tonic for the body sorts of exercises. Can you speak about that a little more? Yeah, yeah. So, um, I mean, generally I'd say safety comes through strength. And I do, I am a believer in that, that the, with the fingers as well and the rest of the body, the higher the, the strength capacity, the less likely you are to breach that. So training that is a really good thing. But we've got to look at what's happening in our sort of daily lives going on at the moment. And um, there's all sorts of thoughts around the next posture is the best posture. And um, is there anything such bad with rounded shoulders and all that and so on. But this isn't about that. Don't, there's no need to get bogged down in um, who's right and wrong on these. If you're not moving your body throughout a range and you're not moving, um, your limbs and not loading your body in different ways throughout the day, then your body's going to adapt to what you're doing, which might be more sedentary and might be in a limited range because that's where you're spending most of your time. So 
I think there's a major gain to be won by if you don't have a good manual job that does that for you in terms of not overloading the body, but also meaning that you're working in a range. If you're sitting down a lot, I'm the same. I work a laptop a lot. Even if you're a root setter and like root setters, you're up and down ladders all day, they're holding holds in front of their face and you think they're really, really active, but they're still going to be within limited range during that part of the day. Just doing some of these exercises can really help open up the body and mean that you're able to perform when you are ready for training and it's going to help blood flow uh, the rest of the time. And a lot of the, a lot of what this is doing is just blood flow and making sure that the muscles are not staying contracted in too small a range throughout the time. So I think for me, it plays a ma- major role. I would, a lot of the elite athletes that I work with tend not to do this a huge amount. And when they do, they and they start doing it because maybe they've got to a high level through just climbing, but then they're starting to see some of the issues starting to rise up. They find major benefits from doing that as well. So I think when they learn to do that, it makes a big difference. And then if you look at any other sport that has like a full team of people behind them, they're doing this sort of thing all the time. They're being told to stretch. They're being told to berrigan. They're being told to um, do yoga. They're being told to go into saunas. And all of this is blood flow and movement. And that's basically what it is. Um, to further that as well is if you consider the muscles are working with uh, strength and you're working anaerobically when you're doing strength training because you're only doing it for a short duration at high intensity, you're working those muscle fibers responsible for that. However, there's a lot of stabilizing muscles which work quite aerobically as well. So say around the shoulder particularly. If you're out like also doing strength training but then you're also doing high rep work throughout the rest of the time, you're going to be working some of these more aerobic-based muscles, which will help with recovery anyway and blood flow to the area. Because once again, it's all about blood flow really to make sure that you're recovering well and you're able to support the body and ad- adapting to the higher intensity stimulus later on. So getting the good stuff in and the bad stuff out. Mm. That's great. It reminds me of a of a podcast I listened to years ago on the Tim Ferriss show with uh, coach Christopher Sommer. He's, he was the, he used to be the national team coach for the um, U.S. gymnastics team. And he called, he would do these things that he would call feeding sessions where, you know, he, he was like the strength coach. So he wasn't doing the skills drills and then tumbling and stuff. He was just trying to get the gymnast strong. And a lot of his uh, strength training was high intensity but then he would have these feeding sessions that were just really crazy high rep sessions to feed the tissues. So for example, like do a hundred calf raises at body weight and then pivot your, your toes facing outward and do a hundred more and then pivot your toes facing in and do a hundred more. And like, it would just totally destroy someone like me who doesn't do that regularly. But the whole point of it was just to get nutrients to the tissue and help them recover. Yeah, and I think um, it's stuff we can, everyone wants to be proactive in their own progression, right? They're like, the worst thing you can do, like same with in rehab, like if uh, you can't remember his name, but your physio said to you, okay, what one used to do is just rest and sit around and the body will sort itself out. That's definitely not what you want to hear. You want to be like, you want to have agency in your own recovery. And I think, you know, like you can't recover too hard. You can't rest too hard. But what 
So what you can do is if you're doing a lot of these motions that aren't going to compromise the strength training, because they should be on different days, low intensity or at different times, um, and they're only supporting your feeling of commitment and buy-in, and they're making your body feel better and helping recovery and feeding the tissues. And there's no reason we can't do them. And it makes you feel more agency in your own progression rather than sitting around and waiting for the next boulder session where you're going to do so many reps, so many sets. And you're like, by the time you get there, you've done a long week of work, uh, work a week, like week, week of work. <laughs> and, um, and you're trying to really focus in, but maybe that day just wasn't the day. But actually what the athletes are doing and definitely what the athletes should be doing is they should be making the most of the rest of the time. And it doesn't mean, I'm not saying people need to do crazy endurance sessions. It's just movement and blood flow. And it's just about getting the body moving as frequently as you have time for. Mm. Awesome. So you said your number one is to lay on the bench and do the the snow angels movement with <laughs> light weights in your hands and just kind of explore different different uh, parts of that movement. Um, and then you you threw in a couple more. You you came back to the dorsal flank uh, dorsiflexion and the shoulder rotations. Any other staples that you would throw into that mix, or are those like a good three to to use as staples? Uh, I would say uh, any kind of sort of leg kicks, because um, pretty much what I would be looking to do is if talk say we use the example of someone who generally has a sedentary work life, or you know you're um, you don't work in a large range of motion day to day, is I'd be looking at the hip adductors and hip flexors. So can I get a movement around there? And that might be leg kicks, side to side, front to back. It could be Cossack squats, which are squatting down one side, standing up, squatting down the other side, just at body weight. Um, it could be doing like a bit of a couch stretch and do some, some kind of movements there where your legs behind you, where it's the hip flexor. Um, and these are all just things I would move between. I, I just personally, you can do sets and reps of stuff, but if you just did it, it's great. Just just do it and, pl and play with the body. Um, Working the lats in the QL. So that could be doing stuff like standing with your feet apart and just letting your body roll down to the, to the one side. So you're going to try and touch your head towards your foot and then just roll your body all the way through and stand up the other side and back down. It's pretty much basic kind of yoga, Tai Chi style movements. And if you did that, every lunch break, every morning, you're just not going to feel bad. The hard bit is sticking with it, which mm -hmm. I totally understand is really hard to do. And I'm just as guilty as everyone else um, for sitting down. I'm like in the zone of working and I won't stand up for ages. Mm -hmm. So you, you've got to provide uh, the easiest way to do that. A good one for me is uh, if there's a yoga ball around, um, I'll naturally kind of like move towards it and sit on it and then I'll slide onto my back and then all of a sudden I'm like rolling around and kind of just playing because I like doing that. And because of my gymnastics background, I try and um, like handstands are something which I can, I can still do, I can, I can kick up into. But the point is, it's something which suddenly gets me playing with my body and playing with my movement. And I'll be like, oh, I should, you know, you haven't done a handstand in a while, I'll go and do a handstand. But if someone was to go and go, oh, I've not sat down and cross-legged on the floor for a bit, let's do that. And then let's see if I put my leg here, let's put my leg there. <laughs> and before you know it, you get going. So don't overthink, oh, I need to do this session or this session. 
just go and do one thing to get started, whether that's sitting on the floor, going into handstands, sitting on a yoga ball. And all of a sudden, before you know it, you'll have done a few different things, and then you're back to the desk. Mm. Um, and I think that's a really good way to get going. That's great. Um, and that reminds me, I, th- I think this is another Tim Ferriss thing that he says, but um, I, a lot of people talk about this when it comes to habits, psychology, just set the bar super low, super, super low. Like one thing that I remember Tim talking about was, uh, you know, he kept missing his, me- his daily meditation practice and he was stressed out. And he was like, you know what, whenever I remember to do it, I'm just going to stop and take one deep breath, literally just one deep breath. And he set the bar so low that he couldn't make any excuses in his brain to not do it. You know, he would just do it. He would just stop and take one deep breath. And then almost always, because he had stopped to take one deep breath, he would take a few more, you know, and then it would, he'd feel a little more relaxed and then he'd go back to whatever he was doing. So that's something that really helps me is, you know, hearing you talk about this, it's really easy for me to jump to to overwhelm of like, oh, damn, Ollie just listed half a dozen things and all of a sudden that could, you know, really add up to a lot of time. But don't overthink it. Just pick one thing, you know, maybe I'm just going to like stand on a, a step and do some calf raises, stretch out my my Achilles and then see how I feel. You know, I can go back to work or I can do a couple more things if I feel like it. So, yeah, that's great. Yeah, I think that's a really, really good point, actually. Actually, it's... Um... I think this is probably one thing I'm guilty of, and I think we are in the the sphere of people that are trying to educate, is we want to offer so much that it can feel like there's too much to do. And like we said earlier on in the conversation about you're not going to do everything right, and no one does. And the thing that I often see is, we, and I'm so guilty on this to do with like headset and psychology, is um, there's so much stuff that you could implement that it's hard to get anything done. But the analogy that uh, really stuck with me was, um, and I think I see this a lot in training, was there was a, it was a really good analogy, which I listened to in a book uh, by Oliver Berkman about riding the bus. I don't know if you've heard that in terms of the Helsinki bus system. I think it's Helsinki. Is this, it's, Oliver Berkman, is this 4,000 weeks by chance? I've, I've, I'll have to yeah, revisit this. Yeah, 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 yeah. Such a good book. Oh my gosh, so good. Exactly. Yeah. Really, really, really good. And like, I think the analogy was, um, there's a pretty much it for all the buses that are leaving the city, they take the same route out and then they start to branch out and go differently. Um, and the way I see it a little bit with training is kind of like the way he says it is that what he's using it in terms of creativity and being unique, that everyone has to follow the same path to begin with effectively kind of like the whole uh, specialization you build your base first then you specialize and you you jump off the platform that you built underneath which i think is a really good way for people to see their climbing particularly if you're in the early years of your climbing build the base build a great base and you can always specialize later on but if you have this base to go from you're already out of the city so everyone all climbers pretty much follow the same path to begin with they try and get the finger stronger they try and get the movement up don't try and be too unique too early mm. um so, and the analogy I'm using in terms of training and training stimulus is what you often see is people hop on the bus, they can see their progression, they're going in the right direction. And as soon as they lose sight of that progression, it takes a little weave or it takes a little detour. They get off the bus and they go back to the start and they go, oh, I'm going to try a different way. Mm. And they do a new exercise, a new stimulus, a new style of climbing. 
they've now heard me talk about Aiden's about two climbing. So they, they've gone back to the start and they're going to go, I'm going to reinvent myself as, as Aiden. And they go on a new bus and they start going out. They see progression, they feel really good, neurological gains. And then it starts to things slow down, they get in traffic and they think they're not going to be get to where they want to go. So they go, do you know what? I don't think this is right for me. I'll go back to the start and I'll try again. And you do slowly build up because obviously you're bringing this all together. But if you change bus too often, you don't get anywhere in the long run. So to really understand whether something works for you or whether a habit is going to work or not work, you need to stay on the same bus for a while. Mm. And I think that's a really nice way of uh, analogy for me to think about these things. I love that analogy. That's great. Yeah, thank you for that. That is actually... A perfect lead-in to one of the things that I personally wanted to make sure that we got to today, but it could take a little time to talk about it. Are you are you good to continue? Do you feel good? You're good. Thumbs up. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'm being so greedy with you, um, but this is really fun and this has been amazing. So, like I said earlier at the start of the conversation, I interviewed Tom Randall. This was over a year ago now. Uh, episode 74. And I revisited that this morning because I remembered that I had asked him about a period of your partnership, you, Ollie, and and Tom together, where you learned so much from one another. Um, You were super strong. And uh, what did he call you? Obscenely inefficient, obscenely strong and obscenely inefficient as far as like metabolic efficiency. And I I know that you've made fun of yourself. You, You called yourself one of the most metabolically inefficient people you had ever met, um, at least when you started on this journey. And then Tom was the opposite, super fit, um, but really struggled with strength training with, you know, he, he was so uncomfortable with, with cutting the volume to focus on high intensity and things like that. And you guys seemed to have really helped round each other out as athletes, which is amazing. Um, so I, I would love to I'll just kind of lay out where I'm headed with this. Um, I would love to hear you share your side of that story and what the biggest lessons were for you. And then um, selfishly, I'm going to tie it all back to myself. And this could turn into a little bit of a therapy session, but I think it'll be really useful for everybody listening because it also ties into exactly this analogy that you just shared of the bus. Such a good analogy. I feel really pulled between wanting to get the most out of my bouldering and leaning into some of the superpowers that I've neglected for a long time and trying to climb V13 someday. I also want to climb 514 someday, hopefully soon. And I've, I really want to improve at sport climbing. And I go back and forth with this all the time. Um, I love both when I, when I only focus on one for six months, I kind of miss the other, and I don't know how to pursue both of those goals moving forward. If it's better to f- specialize in the one direction and then a- achieve the goal and then pivot, or if there's a way to balance both of them, or if I'm trying to ride two different buses going in two different directions at the same time. Um, but anyway, so that's where I want to head with this. And I think it'd be it'd be helpful to hear your thoughts on it because, of course, I'm not alone in, in this scenario. So many climbers have kind of diametrically opposed goals and, you know, what's the best path to get there, um, I I think is an interesting question to explore. But let's go back to you and Tom. 
Um, did you listen to that podcast? Not to put you on the spot, but um, how does Tom's recollection and his version of the story match up to yours? Any differences there? I, I think I think I'm, I might have listened to... I can't remember if I listened to it or someone told me about it. I try not to... I talked to Tom enough in person that I feel a bit weird about... Um, listening to to him as well outside oh i've got a, mi- sick I've got of a million voice messages <laughs> exactly well here let me let me jump in let me jump in and summarize it because i just listened to it today so it's very fresh in my mind but um the takeaways were for, for me listening to that was that it's way more complex and it takes way longer for a very strong person to get fit for long routes for instance than it is to do the opposite for someone who's very fit to get strong. Like he he made it sound like his adaptation happened pretty quickly. He just needed to cut the volume and, and focus on very simple strength training. And for you, he said it was like three years to really make a proper dent in your metabolic efficiency and in probably four or five years before he was like, wow, this guy, he was watching you climb a, a 8C, like a long 14B um, and really marveling at how far you had come. Um, so that was my takeaway, but I'd love to hear yeah, your side of the story. Um, I would say, if I'm honest, I'd say that's his slight bias, but I understand where he's coming from with that, which I'll explain. <laughs> so I don't think it's easy one way or the other. I think it depends what your body, what message your body is used to hearing, what it likes to hear, and then what you tend to give it. So I naturally side towards strength training and effectively when we met I'd, I'd come out of university i'd doing sports science degree that when i was first at university and um had all this knowledge and i pretty much as always kind of like spread between different disciplines and not really applied that knowledge to myself because um i was so interested in applying it to other people so real thought, quickly so real, I'm gonna make real quickly, sorry, but how does your gymnastics background fit into that? Were you a gymnast still at this point, or just a gymnast as a as a kid growing up? Uh, I was a gymnast as a kid growing up, so I was uh, gymnastics till sort of teenage years and sort of competed internationally. Um, the way that it transferred to climbing is, I would say, I naturally have held a lot of strength and I maintained strength training after I finished gymnastics throughout the key years as a late teenager but I also had a lot of um, development of shoulder strength in particular and core strength through gymnastics the downside was I climbed quite hard bouldering very quickly I enjoyed campusing far too much and I pretty much springboarded myself to a, a plat like a really hard plateau quickly and then it, i had to go back and relearn movement patterns mm. much beyond that so it's i'd still say it's a an attribute that stayed with me to this day and been maintained in terms of strength flexibility unfortunately i neglected and it didn't uh i didn't maintain that through the years becoming an adult but i can still say i can still do an iron cross today just uh, like a week or two of training wow. and that sort of strength has transferred um but I think in the long run, it really plateaued me because I didn't acknowledge the lack of technical ability at the beginning, and I, I enjoyed pulling hard too much. Um, so yeah, those those pros and cons. Um, but after university, I 
effectively decided that in order to get buy-in from athletes and to test myself, I'm going to I'm going to put this train into the test. And I did a four four or five month very measured, very specific block of training on strength training to increase finger strength because finger strength was my weakness. Um, believe it or not, but I went all in my early years of climbing. Finger strength was something I couldn't hold on to holds, but I could move between them because I had the shoulder strength, the power, the pull. And it would be a little bit technique as well, but my fingers were definitely something that even just hanging on a fingerboard, I found really hard. Yeah, so, that makes sense coming from gymnastics. Yeah, so through university, I worked harder on that, but I was still probably on the weaker side of finger strength. And afterwards, I did a really, really focused block. And it's probably the most strict and scientific I've ever been with myself. Um, and after that, in I think in it's something like in January, uh, I climbed my first V10. In February, first V11. In February, first V12 of the same year. Wow. And then built the base under it. And um, I was pretty much, it was like proof of concept for me in terms of like, can I apply this? And I still had a lot of movements to be gained, tactics to be gained, but in terms of the strength that I developed was, was a really high level. So enter Tom. Uh, that's when we met and I'd gone to a party or something and then beaten his um, finger strength scores when I was uh, pretty drunk. In the, in the cellar of his house, and that's what I—that's what I remembered. And he was—he remembered it differently. But I was like, "Weren't you guys at a party?" And you took him down into your cellar. Yeah, okay, thank you. I feel validated. Yeah, I—I've I, been at a party. I've been at the pub with a few friends after a climbing competition, just a friendly one, and we'd gone down to his, his cellar, and he had the old testing edge, and um, I remember him talking about it and going, "Oh, this is how we test athletes. Some people can hang this with one arm." And I'd kind of rocked up. I was really warm from this competition and, and the pub. And I could hang it with my, my rucksack on with all my gear in. Oh, wow. And he was just like, I think he was pretty sharp. So, which I found hilarious at the time because I was like, I've trained way beyond this. And so I went back up to testing. And I remember pretty much hanging on with enough weight and I kind of ended up, um, you know, going through some of my skin and my fingers. And then we did some, uh, endurance testing or like uh, metabolic testing and I was I thought I tried really hard like I was really, <laughs> I was really trying um, and then Tom proved to me that I wasn't so I, I think I still probably got the worst scores we've ever seen on that <laughs> uh, compar- comparatively um, so what I did then was I'd, I'd proven the concept to myself about uh, bouldering strength not to say I was a brilliant boulder by any means but for me uh, alongside partnerships, it's it's that kind of proof of concept. Like, can I take theory and, and make it work for myself? And and um, so I've done that, and I was decided I wanted to get into roots and I wanted to be a root climber. Now, I think that probably the argument against what Tom had said is when we switched training, is I got fit really quickly. Like on a circuit board, I was um, I was. He gave me some pretty awful training, actually. Like, I would never give someone... Well, I've given it to one or two people I know really well that are junior athletes. But, I mean, I was doing some horrendous amount of training. Um, and but I was fully dedicated. I didn't have much stress at work. I was, I was working in a wall at the time. So all my energy was towards this. And I got fit metabolically very, very quickly. 
However, I just I went on a trip um, not long after a sport climbing trip, and I was sort of going around the circuit board, maybe double lapping a, an eight A and eight B route, and I was and what I neglected was um, I'd stacked the decks partially towards performance, but it doesn't guarantee it doesn't guarantee your performance like training's just like part of the deck and i'd gone outside i had no technical ability to climb on rock hadn't been on rock in a while particularly spanish sport climbing it was pretty much the first time i was doing it um i wasn't able to relax on holds there was a slight fear of falling in there and by the end of the trip i'd made gains but i was way 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 down on my sort of expectation and so then there came the real battle of, okay, I'm, maybe I'm not fit. I'm actually fit. What Am I learning to climb faster when actually outside you don't climb as fast? Mm. So through doing that came the real journey of, okay, what does fitness actually look like? How do you apply fitness to the wall? Um, so I think that must have been the first year of training. And then it really, really took quite a long time for me to be able to apply this. And I think the reason was, and it kind of links in with that gymnastics element, is I find that a lot of athletes who have not had to struggle at the beginning of their development, you know, the, I'm very lucky in terms of, because I did gymnastics, which is a large movement, um, movement variety. You get a good movement acumen. I learned things very quickly and I would, and I would generally progress to a jack of all trades level very fast. In, in most sports, and I've done a lot of other sports, so it kind of translates really well. But I never had to suffer too much for it. I get mm-hmm. the, oh, you're, you're so good so quickly, you know, that surprise, like, oh, I went up three B grades in three months, and, oh, these things all seem really easy for me. To be a good root climber, you need to know how to suffer it out, and you need to be able to willing to fight, I think. And, and you need to be willing to stick with things and work stuff down. And I just hadn't, gone through that process before so i developed metabolic fitness in the forearm i developed the ability to go around in circles and i still had some of the strength but hadn't developed the the ability to suffer on the wall and really relax when you need to relax tense the right muscle groups you need to tense them and relax the others to breathe well and there's so much components of it so i would say for anyone who is going through the journey of going from strength to fitness and the same with fitness to strength really is look at the whole package look at the if you've not if you're not naturally a uh, fluent relaxed climber you need to learn to move like that and you can still do that in training but say you go to the wall and you want to do roots for the day because you're trying to get fit and that's your in your training plan you're going to go do five roots try for the one of the sessions or one of the roots focus on this is going to be all about relaxation and breathing i'm going to focus on just two things let's just breathe out as much as i can and try and relax then make it two weeks out of five three weeks out of five build it into the training plan provide intent or translate much better later on and for those who are fit going towards bouldering i'd say exactly the same because i've had this recently with my partner maddie cope who is uh much better climber than I am. She's like amazing to watch on the wall. Um, and she's really, really fit naturally, but on a board, um, 
she climbed like a bit like a sucker spots to begin with. She'll do a move and just like swing up. And I'm like, you know, you're letting go here. Like you can hold that. Come on. Like she's, she doesn't actually have strong fingers in basic rep position, but she learned to move amazingly on a board and like really poppy, snappy, but it took a, like she had to learn it the other way. She had to know what that felt like. Mm. And it was amazing to watch her progress in that way because she went from climbing in a way that didn't show her at the best and didn't make the most of what she could already do, irregardless of strength. And then she learned this new movement pattern mm. and then she got stronger and then she was like, and it all built together. Um, so I think it works both ways. You've got to like think about the, the metabolic changes and the actual ways of applying that to the wall. And to your, um, to kind of like bring this all round together, is I went from uh, very, very strong fingers and appalling fitness as a as a boulderer on the progressional, I became better and better as a root climber. And then I started throwing and bouldering again. And my finger strength was lower than before. My fitness was up. And then I climbed my first V13. Mm. Um, wow. Because I had a, a bigger package I could session for longer. I understand I understood more about movement mm. because I was doing more volume through root climbing. So I was still on the strong side compared to air quotes fit but i think you can definitely achieve both if you get the balance right Mm. thanks for that answer that's um there's so there's so much good stuff in there and it's (laughs) it's funny this says so much about me and my brain and my obsession with my fingers that in that whole story like the thing that i was that i latched on to it initially and like i heard i heard you the whole thing was amazing um, was the four or five months that you focused on your finger training and going from V10 to 12, you know, like I was dying to ask you what you did. Um, but I don't think I will, because I think that will distract from all of that other amazing stuff that you just shared. And you guys have shared so many resources on how to train your fingers. So I'm just going to trust that people that need that, that want that can go find it. Um, and we're going to just focus on the other lessons that you just laid out in that great story. So, yeah, thank you. Um, Did it, what, if I said uh, there was a really unique thing in there, would you be just dying to ask? If there was a unique thing? Yeah, if I said, oh, of course, of course. Else do. <laughs> <laughs> What's the secret, Ollie? Like, I'm still, my brain's still... It's that question is just like ever present. What's the secret? And it's not a good question. It's there's never a secret. You're shaking no, your head. There was no, no secret. No, I definitely um this the secret was I <laughs> so I was working in a gym at the time as a personal trainer. Uh, before I kind of like had many athletes. I just finished university and I was between travel, so I was at home and what I'd done was build a foot on campus board with a fingerboard at the top that when my uh, mom at the time and my mom wasn't in I would get out of my room I'd put it against the hallway against my doorway <laughs> and I would train on that and then I would be working out in the gym and then I'd climb outside and maybe once a week go into an indoor wall and the key the secret was I was consistent for that entire duration which I've not, like I said at the beginning, I've not done since in the same maniacal, monk-like way. Mm. Um, a good example, another example of that with fingers is, 
uh, Cam, who works here, amazingly strong lad. He's currently doing his PhD uh, in sports performance. He's a coach at, coach at Lattice. In the lockdown, he already had strong fingers. I think he was hanging plus a couple of kilos body weight on one arm on an edge. He, um, unlike the rest of us who probably tried to make the most of every opportunity to get outside that we legally were allowed to do, um, we Cam went into a monk zone and I think he came out of, I think it, I, I might be misquoting this, he's got it on his Instagram, I think. He was hanging the edge with close to plus 20 or plus 18 kilos on one arm. Wow. And so he went up a huge amount. And what did he do? He just did the normal training exercises you can find on the Lights website, on the <laughs> YouTube channel. But he did it so consistently, provided progression throughout that time. But yeah, he's not very fit at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So now the challenge for him is to take that finger strength and go back and include all the other all the other things the rock sense the yeah. you know, movement economy the the you know um the confidence on the wall you know all those other things have to come back in to really level up with that new finger strength yeah he went back to creating like pyramids and working space going outside mm. rock acumen like you said and it was the same with both me and tom like, I would like to have a record as well. Tom was an absolute nightmare throughout the entire period. <laughs> um, I've never I've never had to work with anyone who's worse for, like, following a plan despite the... Like, the best thing it worked was, as we knew we were putting this out in media because it was helping support me as a coach coming into the community. So it was, like, a bit of a strategy there. But I only wanted to get better, obviously. But I, I set him a a wide Gaston move, really strengthy problem. And I was like, this isn't a brilliant measuring stick for you. Like, I can see whether you're making progressions, you can train the movements. This is awesome because it's going to work your lats. He's a very hands in front of the body climber. Mm. He's a crack climber. And crack climbers tend to really struggle when they go really wide. So I made up this climb. And I went back about three weeks later, having trusted him to be training on this thing. And he'd go, oh, yeah, I can get up it now quite easily. And he did the squirmiest, like, bendy method of flicking between these holes. And I was, and he was like, oh, you're really chuffing me. And I was like, no, I'm really not. I'm, I'm so gutted. <laughs> you, you, just, you just tech your way through a basic problem, which I'd set you. And, like, I was going, stop, stop climbing so much, stop climbing so much. And, I mean, he, he definitely saw the proofing concepts as well, dropping the volume. But, um for him as well, like he has, he transferred the strength a lot quicker. I think what he was, what happens quicker is if you're fit getting strong, you tend to transfer it a lot quicker. And then you actually struggle to feel fit because you don't know how to control the contraction. Mm. And this is the thing you see with people who are fit and they start doing strength training and they take creatine and they say, well, I'm getting a lot more muscle pump. A lot of that from my perspective, is often to do with contractile um, control. And the people are over-pulling a lot. And you notice that when people huh. get stronger quicker. So he, I think he transferred his strength a lot quicker because he was trying specific problems to test out the system that he knew and he was making gains by strength. And then he had to retransfer back to fitness. Whilst I think going from strong to fit, there's a lot more control and movement qualities that you need beyond the metabolic 
that those are the ones I think are harder to gain. Yeah, <clears throat> totally. That I mean, that all makes sense, but also, or and also, I should say, and you know, Tom's background, any really fit climber's background, they're just going to have so much more mileage under their belt than the really strong, you know, boulderer who rests a lot between tries and doesn't have density in their sessions and things like that. Like, so they're just going to have so much more, so many more movements on rock um, in their kind of library and integrating that strength is is just going to, they have so many of the other factors dialed, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. So that makes sense. Yeah. I think um, coming back to to yourself and maybe other people, I'd say I don't think low volume works all year round. Personally, I think if if you're too controlled in the sessions, if you want to be an all round climber, and even if you want to specialize in bouldering, to be honest, I don't. I think there's a time limit on that uh, to be really effective uh, in terms of being able to have good work capacity in sessions to be able to enjoy your climbing more. And because at some point you're going to get the opportunity to climb more, whether it's on holiday or a longer training session, and you'll just burn out and then you'll think you're not strong. But actually it's lack of um, lack of uh, volume that's under your belt. And I think one thing that we see a lot of is climbers coming from a young age and then starting to drop the volume and they're able to perform better and better and better because their volume's been dropped. But as with Tom, they've developed a base that's like quite big from a younger age. They can get away with it because they've got that residual foundation to sit on. Whilst I think a lot of us that started later on as adults, um, or like it, unless you come from another sport, is you tend to not have the same base capacity to kind of just drop straight back down to unless you do training and keep topping it up. So I think like even those athletes I work with that are really focused on short end boulders. It's pretty impressive that when they come and do training sessions, they can actually go for quite a long time because they're just relying on this humongous base. So I think to balance both boulder and sport, you can't let your work capacity ever drop a hu- too low for too long mm-hmm. because the transfer back the other way will just be such a kick in the teeth to be able to do. Whilst you can still focus on bouldering but as long as you maintain a bit more work capacity and use session length and so on it actually really helps the transfer when you come later on the bit that i find most important for the transfer from boulder to roots say for yourself from what i found is you might need a longer window of learning to suffer on the wall for long duration and um, prior to going outside or going on the routes compared to someone who route climbs all the time or is used to that and naturally better at it. So a good example would be uh, myself and Tom going on a sport climbing trip. We've both been bouldering for ages, uh, doing enough bouldering that our aerobic system's being worked. We might do a little bit of traversing all the time to keep up our aerobic system and warming up and so on. It t- tends to top that up. But then before a sport climb trip, when we go to Spain together, he'll literally get pumped or get on a route or do circuits when he's on the wall for more than 10 minutes and get pumped for about two weeks. I'll need to do that for about four to six weeks mm. because it takes me that long to get used to the suffering, the feeling of the pump and feeling of moving throughout the pump. Um, and I think that's the key bit. You can, you can either do it in a block like that or what I'm doing now these days 
is I'll tend to do four by fours or something to that effect in my heaviest strength training phases if I know that I'm going to transfer the other way because I don't I don't fully specialize as a boulder anymore, but I do try and perform on bouldering um, like during the winter months and stuff. But then a four by four session doesn't isn't enough of a stimulus compared to the others and my natural attributes to knock off my top end. But actually it keeps that foundation sort of cemented for when I transfer the other way and my efficiency. And it means that my volume stays higher. Got it. Yeah, that's really helpful. I was that's a that's perfect because I was actually going to ask um if there were different elements to maintaining the work capacity. Um because like for me personally, something I've always been really good at is having really long bouldering days. But that's not the same as doing four by fours. You know, those are I can like keep trying hard, like try after try after try for three or four hours generally. Um or or you know, try a project for a while, then go and do something else, then go and do something else. But the bouldering to sport climbing shift is always way harder than going the other way. And I haven't been doing something like four by fours to maintain. So yeah, maybe that's something I'll try. That's helpful. Yeah, I think it's just like um, when you look at your year and you go, okay, um, uh, I think you say you're going to Smith or St. George or whatever again back in March. I'm totally guessing the season's here. I should know that. Um, no, I would just work back. Yeah, I would work back from that. So say you're going in March, start of March, I'm going to St. George again on the steep stuff. Probably going to get pretty boxed. Um, in February, I definitely made sure I was sustained on the wall at least once a week with that effort of like getting used to fighting pump or just, you know, shaking out. And if you're in a bouldering venue, it might mean having to repeat boulders or it might just mean like finding a traverse or something. Or you even just do it on the fingerboard. Um, and I might look into doing that. And then in January, I'd probably just start making sure that maybe once a week at the end of the session, I'll do some reps of a boulder if the transfer is something that's really crucial to you. Now, it sounds like you've got really good work capacity anyway. So the alternate to this, and this is what I find with most professional athletes that, like yourself, are climbing outside most of the year or all year long, is don't don't worry about it, January and February, you're bouldering, keep what you work capacity. Just realize that March is going to be kind of shit <laughs> and it's going to take a transfer and set yourself the intention before that. Even write yourself, I've had people write themselves a letter mm. before because I've worked with athletes for a three month period and they expect to, they expect to walk out and they've bought a ticket, ticket to win. And actually, you know, all you've done is stack the deck in your favor. That's the only thing the trainer does. It stacks the deck slightly in your favor. You don't deserve anything. So, what you need to do is write yourself a letter now and say, during this date and this date, I will probably feel like rubbish. My movement will be off and I will get boxed out of my mind. It's okay. Don't panic. Stick with the plan. Stay on the bus. Wow. And you know it will come. That's so good. Yeah, I think that's, yeah. I to, so I think the letter thing is really, it's quite powerful because you're seeing, I can say, like, as a coach, I can say, you know, just remind you, but you said it'll be all right. It's all right. It's all right. But you've written a letter to yourself. Um, another good one is, say you are coming off the back of a peak climbing and you've dieted, you're a little bit lighter, is you've performed really well. Write yourself a letter saying, um, okay, nice one. You performed really well. 
you know you're going to go back into training. If you thrash or try and maintain this low weight, it'll come back to bite you in the bum. Mm. So you are going to put on weight. You will feel heavier. Um, this is normal adaptation. You're an athlete. This is what athletes do. Then three weeks later, when I'm getting the messages about someone feeling heavy on the board or, oh, I'm, you know, I find it like I just can't stop eating. I'm like, you're refueling. Okay, there's your letter. It's okay. We've done this. We know it's the plan. Mm. You're on the right bus. That's that's kind of how I work with these things these days. Yeah, that's those are both amazing uh, reminders for for all of us. And um, I don't know. It the, these are those these are some of those things that are so obvious after you've screwed it up. Do you know what I mean? Like my, <laughs> I remember the first time I like felt like I had a really amazing breakthrough in my climbing. It was this bouldering trip to Bishop in 2017. And I trained really, really specifically and focused for that trip for two or three months beforehand. Had a week, had five climbing days, um, sent four V10s and a bunch of other stuff. It was my best week of, of climbing to date by far. And uh, what did I do? Well, I... I celebrated and thought that I had finally, you know, leveled up and just assumed that that was how strong I climbed now, you know, <laughs> it was like so obviously, you know, like an Olympic moment for me personally, like a Super Bowl or, or some sporting peak. And I just thought like, oh, I did it. I leveled up and now I climb V10 whenever I want to. And I didn't respect what I had put my body through leading up to that, how much of a specific performance peak that had been, that I needed to recover on the other side of it, that I needed to take a bunch of steps back and ease off and then rebuild really slowly. And I didn't do any of that and I injured myself and had my worst finger injury um, so far that I've ever had. So massive lesson. And in hindsight, I'm like, no other sport does that. I was so stupid, you <laughs> know, but climbers, we just think that we should be able to perform at our best all the time you're in you're out you're round and it just doesn't work that way so yeah thanks for that super helpful reminder i think um i think it kind of like highlights three i've kind of got i've got three points off the back of that which i think quite interesting is one the biggest lesson i learned early in my coaching was um, and pretty much all the lattice team does this as coaches. It was, I tell anyone who starts, this is a key lesson as a coach. Um, is if someone says to you, I'm having an amazing week, I am absolutely smashing it, you tell them to back off. 100%. If you think about it, it's like, so with you, if you peak for a week or your body just feels good for whatever reason it is, for some reason you can access what like a higher load whether it's volume, intensity, whatever, your body, you are now able to push into a higher load. So you're able to stress your body in a higher load. So if you were like, say you were hit your, uh, it's like testing every day, isn't it? Effectively, you don't tell someone to test every day. So your body, you're about to push yourself into your body beyond it's ever been. So you let the athlete enjoy it and you tell them to back off. And any of the people listening that I train, will know this, I've told it, everyone it all the time, is one, back off, and two, don't try and air quotes supercharge it by cutting weight, because that's the other way to end up an injury. And that's something I used to see a lot more of, which is I'm feeling amazing, Every, the training's going great, 
I reckon if I lost a kilo or two, I'm going to be absolutely flying. Pretty much nine times out of ten, I've heard I'm on an absolute roll, or I'm going to um, I'm going to keep going, or I'm supercharged with diet. It results in injury mm. because you're pushing your body harder than you've ever been able to push it. It's not able to cope with that. So if you see that in your own training diary, then stop it. Is uh, easiest lesson. Yeah. The the next next point was as a coach, one of the things that we're responsible for is being a timekeeper. I think we discussed this a little briefly in our in our chat before is um you live 24 hours, seven days a week of your life. And if you're climbing for four days a week or whatever, you know, like you're living four sessions a week of your life. I am, however invested I am in your performance in climbing, and I do get very emotionally invested in people's climbing. I'm not living that day to day. So when you're thinking about a climb or you're thinking about your finger strength, thinking about the niggle in your finger, the amount of time you think about that, I only see certain interjections of that every, say, two days, three days, four days, five days my perspective on time is going to be better than yours when it comes to adaptation, injury rehab, um, time for things to get better, improve conditions to change, the amount of sessions you've had. The An external viewpoint plays a massive role in keeping time realistic because time goes much slower when you're involved, you're living it every day, every moment. So try and create some way of being accountable to to the time or realistic to your own time a training diary is a great way of doing it and reviewing that every week because all of a sudden you realize oh i only injured myself on thursday and sunday and i feel like it's been weeks <laughs> um or get an external person and just try and figure it out with them being accountable whether it's a coach or a friend you don't it doesn't have to be a coach but say to the friend look i'm feeling amazing and I've just had my best week ever and I heard on another podcast that I need to like back off. Can you make sure that I don't get on another V12 for the next week or start thrashing again because or start pushing it too hard just for a week? That's all I want. Or like three sessions or something like that. All of a sudden, there's someone else to be accountable for that because you might be thinking, God, it's been ages. And they've said you've only climbed twice. Um, like I had an athlete say to me, oh, is it normal that I've not seen much adaptation in this period of time? And I said, well, you've only had four sessions of that that uh, training, but it'd been three weeks, mm. so it'd been really busy. And I said, and they were like, oh, right, yeah, that makes sense. And I was like, well, and even if you think about it in more detail, you've had four sessions of this type of fingerboarding, which totals out at something like 380 seconds of hanging <laughs> over a month's period. Do you think 380 seconds of hanging justifies that you're going to improve as a climber after climber for 30 years? And it's like it's suddenly it's like you're not trying to make someone feel bad, but I mean obviously <laughs> it's that it's light bulb like, moment. They're, really like, here, but... they're like, oh right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And then the the last point, which is probably most important for today, is I think one thing that I am good at personally as a coach, and which I'd like people to be better at um, in terms of li- as listeners, is it's so easy for us to like think about all these things. That's such a good idea. God, I really should do that. Um, that's like a really nice idea. 
And then you get home, you turn the ignition up, you stop the podcast, you go in your house, you never think about it again. So <laughs> what what you should definitely do, anyone listening, if you found something that was good and something that interests you, or excites you, or you know, something that just stands out, don't go for something that you think work like you know, you're not bothered by. Go for something that would excite you, whether it's me saying it or anyone saying it. Just try and do it. Try and do it for six weeks. And this is once again like a Huberman tactic in terms of this is neurolo- um, neurologically sound research suggesting this. Is if you pick something up for six weeks, whether it's a couple of different habits or traits, and you try and do them every day, and you try and get four out of the six habits or whatever done every day, um, by the end of the six weeks, whatever is then automatic and has low limbic friction, so it's easy to do, that'll stick. And if it doesn't stick, sack it off. So move on. Because mm. regardless of whether it's right or wrong, it's too hard to fit into your current lifestyle. Wow. The worst thing you can do is keep listening to everything and not doing anything. So mm. back to the first point, action is better than nothing. Mm. You're awesome. This is amazing. <clears throat> I love I love how prepared you are with your bullet points and stuff. This is super helpful. Um, a follow-on question from those three points Going back to point number one, if someone's having an amazing performance week, tell them to back off. Practically speaking, what does backing off look like? Uh, easiest metric, which is like, it's pretty extreme really, but if you try and aim for this, you might get somewhere in the middle. <laughs> it's half the load. You just strip it in half. So say you, uh, you said you did four B10s that week on outdoor mm-hmm. sessions. Yeah. Um, how many, how many sessions was that? Uh, five, uh, in the week five, track, like, five climbing days. Yeah. Okay. Five climbing days, four V10s and then that. And I imagine you worked some of those the week before. What was that about? No, that was, that was the one week that I had. I had been in Bishop, um, but it had been a few years since I'd been there. So that was, that was all the time I had. Yeah. Okay. So say you're in that position then for the next, like week or two if you didn't climb more than two and a half days a week and you don't need to drop it to be five but you drop you either did five days a week for the next two weeks and you only climb to be five or you climb two and a half days a week and you can still operate near that b10 level mm. then the likelihood is that by just reducing the load by half or you climb three days and v8s or something you can figure out the calculation every <laughs> any way you want is the likelihood is that your body will probably have enough respite to recover um within that period so dropping the intensity or oh, sorry the overall load by 50 percent in any manner will probably do it and i would say if you're on an absolute smasher of a week or two weeks do at least like 100 to 200 percent of that uh peak period time the drop off. Mm. Um, if you're if you're on a six week peak period, which most people do, it doesn't mean that um, we're not talking about those periods where you built up to it slowly. You've been really progressive, and you're having a peak period of six weeks where you're going to project. We're talking about those rare moments where everything clicks and you're just smashing it for the whole time. Um, so that generally doesn't happen over six weeks. That generally happens for small periods. If you do hit a longer duration of that, the theory probably still stands, to be honest. Um, 
a good example of this, which um, I know we talked so much about Aidan, um, but he, when we first started working together, I think after a year, he uh, had an amazing month in the Lake District and climbed. It was that film, World Class, um, where he we, we peaked him perfectly for that. We got everything lined up right. And I think psychologically he shifted and it all just clicked. The entire focus after that was back off, back up, back mm. up. You need to back off for at least a month or two months. And unfortunately, he didn't back off enough in one of those, like three weeks into that back off period. I think that was the year he got like a pretty bad finger tweak. Mm. And that was just by going, going on a board session and going to max three weeks after the peak he'd been peaking for about four weeks so i think if we'd left it if he'd gone to a submax session or he'd left it another three weeks i think it would have been fine um wow, and i've yeah. seen that time time and time again that's interesting though so for that story how did you decide that a four week long peak period was appropriate is that just you were planning on that from the beginning no no that was um so I, I would say peak periods usually can last around up to six weeks, but within that peak period, you usually got some build-up. So say you're going to say George, you have your transfer for a month in March. You're starting to get used to routes, and then you get like around six weeks of projecting before natural physiological adaptations start to decline. You start to lose a bit of strength and so on. So six weeks is usually the peak block. But Aidan's window of amazingness when we started working together was that's just how long he seemed to sustain the highest level of performance. Mm. Um, like it, that wasn't particularly, it was planned to peak for the, that summer block around six weeks or something is what I was expecting. But he got everything done possible within four weeks. So <laughs> um, wow. he just rode that way for that long. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Oh man, where to go next? Um, I don't, <laughs> this is what I, this is what I do. I don't know why, but with long interviews, they like carry inertia and I'm like, what else can we talk about? Maybe it's just time to, to wrap up here. Um, thank you. First off, this has been an incredible conversation. So many amazing nuggets in here already. I do want to hit on a few quotes that I have written down. Um, from our pre-interview because I think they're really worth touching on. We don't have to spend a ton of time on any of these because I do want to respect your time and start wrapping up here. But yeah, I have I have three, yeah, I have three quotes that I think are worth touching on to kind of round out this conversation. The first one, you said, the main reason most of us can't train like professional athletes is actually because of our headspace and not because of our physical limitations. And I just wondered if you could elaborate on that a little bit. So I think actually we've created a nice platform to, do, for, to discuss this quote based on, so an elite, what, what actually defines training like an elite athlete? Um, and it's having quality training sessions and high volume or the highest volume that, the athlete can cope with in that training session. If you were if you were to look at, it's not always the case, but if you were to look at an Olympic athlete or the, the people that actually make the most of their physical and mental abilities, is they're trying to maximize their time. They're doing the 
work that's going to prevent them from being injured. They're doing the right strength training. They're doing the right aerobic stimulus. Uh, they're doing the right specific practice at the right times. If I was to take the average uh, health worker, nurse, doctor, who are on their feet so much of the day, and they have much harder jobs than elite athletes, sorry to say elite athletes, but they do, <laughs> is if I was to go, okay, you do not have to go to work, you're sorted financially. Like the only job you need to do is be the best athlete you can be. They can't go in and start training um, at the same intensity as an elite athlete. But if I was to say, okay, you're going to go to the wall, the climbing wall at 10 o'clock or 11 a.m. because you prefer to not get up too early compared to your 6 a.m. start in the hospital. Then you're going to spend an hour warming up. You're going to use a Theragun. You're going to roll out on a foam roller just because it feels good. Uh, you've got your coffee there, and then you're going to build up from that. Then the intensity starts building up. You're going to go for as long as you can intensity-wise, but you're going to be strategic with it. You're going to have a short break. You're going to go into the strength and conditioning gym, and you're going to do some really specific work that's based on the loads that you can lift and are appropriate for you at this point in your training. And then later on, you're going to go to the wall and you're going to do some basic circuits around the wall just to get some aerobic stimulus in there. Maybe you go for a job. Apart from the, I'm not trying to undermine what elite athletes do. I think it is challenging and it is hard when you're in a competitive environment and when you're pushing yourself really hard. But I think it'd be a disservice to everyone else who's working really hard in normal jobs, such as a healthcare worker, to suggest that they don't necessarily have the capacity to train like an elite athlete. They've just not had the opportunity to train like an elite athlete. Mm. And I think there's a big difference there. And I'm not saying, I think it's important to clarify, not everyone can become the best level climber. Because I do think, depending on your training age, your opportunities, your basic anthropometrics, um, there are other components in there which contribute to an elite athlete's performance, their actual performance. But to train like an elite athlete, I think there's a huge element of that. It's just to do with how much mental space do I have and how much time do I have in the week to actually apply myself um, without having to think about the stress of finances and kids and everything else that maybe as a 22-year-old full-time climber supported by a sponsorship and the national team don't have to deal with right now. Not saying it's totally easy for them. They have a lot of stresses themselves. Um, but I would say that it's equal to those of a middle-aged doctor with a family who's also trying to climb in their spare time and put passion into their and juggle everything else that's going on. Totally. Yeah, I love that. It is it is kind of a funny thing. I don't know if climbers are special snowflakes. Maybe other sports do this too, but it seems to me like climbers are so much more likely. Um, maybe I'm just speaking for myself here. I've definitely done this, but pro climbers just seem so accessible. You know, like we can go to the same crags. We can look at the same routes, maybe even get on the same routes if we want to. And they're also just seemingly normal people. A lot of the best climbers in the world, you know, just climb. That's changing and fewer of them do that now. But, you know, like Chris Sharma is the classic example. And 
it just seems like I could be like them. I should train like them. I should be able to keep up with Jonathan Segrist, even though that's ridiculous. And in no other sport would would amateur recreational athletes compare themselves to the people that were going to the Olympics for that sport or, you know, basketball players in the NBA or whatever else. And it's that's a great reminder because it is a funny thing that climbers do. It's just like we we hold ourselves to such high um I was going to say standards, but maybe expectations is is a better word. And, um, you know, maybe we're not being fair to ourselves as athletes by not appreciating just the, all the other things that we do um, as, as normal humans, you know, people with kids, people with a, with a career that they are passionate about, a business that they're building, whatever it is. So, yeah, it's a great reminder. I would, um, a good, I, I've kind of been reminded of this a lot over the last years. And um, as much, I, I've absolutely loved the journey with Lattice and, and the time of developing it, but I, I've 100% had burnout, um, work burnout, which I know seems a totally privileged position to say this. I haven't got kids yet. and um, But I've definitely put in a lot of work and a lot of time into it. And... I also tried to perform. I also tried to die at the same time. I also went to study at the same time. And I was psychologically burnt out to quite a bad degree at certain stages. Um, but I think it's it's been really interesting having seen what you are capable of pushing yourself to doing and what you think is normal and what's acceptable. And I look back at some of those periods and I'm going, man, if I had all that energy just to put into one of those things, then it would have been done so much better mm. than it, trying to balance all of them. But I think that's, I guess there's two things from that. One is not everyone can do that. Like I don't, I've not applied myself as much as I can because I think I, I need variety. That is just who I am. I think to be an elite climber and to train like an elite athlete, you do need the ability to be so psyched on it and focused. And I think that's a quality. I don't think anyone can do that. Anyone could train like the elite climber, but to be consistent with it is mm. very, very different. And then the other reminder I had was um, myself and Tom have definitely reduced our workloads quite a lot in the last few last year or two. Uh, we've got a great team here that are far more intelligent than we are, and they're much far, far more organised than we are as well. But so our ability to cope with stress is definitely started to reduce to i would say a more normal and sustainable level but we were both trying a trad project on a recent american trip and we had a we had a meeting that was due in america um which was totally fine but i think it because we care so much about the people we were meeting with it held a certain uh anxiety level behind it because we were worried about um creating any sort of conflicts, which neither one of us is good at dealing with. So when we were building it, we were having a really good time on this trad project. It was, um, and we were like getting really good progression on that. And we were, I was feeling really good in my head in terms of on, on lead and, and making good gains. The day before we had, uh, two days before we had the meet, no, the day we had the meeting, the next day, we climbed like completely rubbish we were all over the place couldn't coordinate 
couldn't do basic movements we've been doing the day before the conditions were way better hmm. but the mental fatigue we had from having the relief of this anxiety having a long day of meetings completely compromised our performance level um and it was so acutely apparent to both of us and we our session capacity dropped uh like i said our coordination dropped and just the fight that we had in ourselves completely dropped and we were both, I remember us both sitting there at the crowd going, God, we've not had this in a while, have we? <laughs> and it was, it was a really good reminder of how we used to operate in terms of just hammering, you know, putting the hammer down the whole time, but then realizing what we weren't, how we were actually affecting ourselves. And it's not that people can't do both, but I don't think you really understand um, what you're capable of until everything else is stripped away. Um, it's kind of like, is there such a thing as overtraining? I think, yes, there is. Like we're talking about elite athletes training and doing loads and loads in a week. Overtraining, you can only really find out if you're at a limit of overtraining, if your sleep, nutrition, and the rest of stress in life is um, sorted and perfect. Mm. And then you'll know it's definitely overtraining. If those things aren't sorted and you can't change them, then you can be overtraining because you're overtraining compared to the scenario that you're in. But if we just, I think it's very easy for people to say, oh, I'm overtrained at the moment, but actually it's, they're not fueling well enough. Mm. So they can't, and they're really stressed from work and they can't cope with that. And I think maybe they can't change those things, which is totally fine and totally um, understandable. Uh, and they should drop the training down, 100% drop the training down, see what they've got. But if you're really... If you think about like, oh, I want, I really want to get this training done. I really want to climb this much, right? I really want to be able to go to the wall and enjoy it four days a week without feeling exhausted. Is your nutrition completely on point? Are you sleeping enough? Can you do something possibly around work that just reduces the stress slightly? Um, I think there's a lot of remit both ways for it. That's a great distinction. It's like overtraining versus under-recovering and how they're connected but kind of two different things that's what i'm hearing yeah yeah and it's yeah it's all very scenario based and i really would hate for anyone to think that i'm being dismissive of people's personal circumstances because i've worked with so many varieties of people and i i, I don't like the thing of um oh if you want to get better at climbing then oh you need to move close to the cracks because I think you can get better at climbing. You don't have to move there, but you have to understand and be have a personal sympathy towards yourself and be kind to yourself on what is actually possible. Don't just be your harshest critic all the time because you should really appreciate how hard general life is and how tiring it is. Mm. Don't just write it off because you've seen the top tra guys training at the gym five days a week. Like They don't have to go and do everything else that you're doing most likely right. right yeah that's great and that's actually a great lead-in into the next quote that i want to share and i think we'll we'll end on this one um barring anything else that you feel like you want to share before i let you go um but this is such a good reminder too this is it's kind of funny but you mentioned this in our first conversation and it, it kind of kind of blew my mind, I guess, a little bit. It's just this funny thing that um, is so taken for granted. It's like everything in, the, in this conversation has built around the assumption that we all want to progress as climbers and reach the next grade and, and whatever. 
progression isn't always the answer. Um, I wrote that down because I found it really interesting. I've been reflecting on it for the last week and a half since we talked. Can you expand on that and how it plays into your coaching? Yeah, I think um, a lot of people might find it quite interesting that the um, person you're in training business and coaching business isn't always for necessarily for progression. And I think the distinction in this is is what progression actually means in the sense of I think we all get very fixated on the next step and the next step being a grade or the next step up in a level or being able to do something quicker, for example, like flash or, you know, feeling better at a certain level. And I mean, sometimes like that just builds up so much stress around the thing that we're supposed to be enjoying and always feels like you're on a um, conveyor belt progression and conveyor belt of work hard, perform, work hard, perform, work hard, perform. When actually you can really, really enjoy your training and be looking at small sort of gains in little areas that maybe don't progress your climbing just yet, but you're healthier than ever. I guess it's, it's, I can imagine people out there being like, that's progression. But the main thing is around this whole grade element is you could look at, okay, I want to climb. And I think we discussed it with yourself, say like V13, like or V14. What is the true thing behind that V14? If it's like a, a um, visceral, I really want to do this, this is great, then that carries you. So it's not stressful or it, it can be a lot of pressure, but that, that carries you through because you've got this visceral feeling of motivation. When often I find that some people feel like they're going through the motions a bit because they're on this conveyor belt. And actually when you challenge them to say, okay, rather than climb V14, what if you go and do a V12 multi-pitch or you want to go and climb, what other V13s are there? Like all these other destinations um, you had, two minor injuries last year can you get through the year without any and climb twice as much you're not going to improve you're not going to climb any v14 f514 sorry um but you're going to have an amazing year of climbing and you're not going to be injured and you're going to be able to thrash as much as you want because your body can cope with it mm. and it's it's still progression but it's not in the historic kind of let's just chase a grade method and same thing again i'm not trying to tell people not to to buy a lattice training plan because at the end of the day, the coach that you're working with is has this thought going on. Like we are thinking about what's what the person's saying, what they might be thinking and offering suggestions of the, alternatively to that. And like I'm making this decision right now. So I think I discussed with you my personal uh, methodology for training over the last few years alongside uh, work has been I have peaked the pyramid so I focused on bouldering. I was like, I want to try and climb a hard boulder grade. So I peaked my pyramid uh, and sort of did a, a consistent uh, sort of 8B standard. And then I built the, like, build the foundation underneath it because the peak gives me a bit of an ego boost, a bit of confidence. Uh, and then I built the foundation underneath it and I carried that through. So I climbed loads of like a pyramid below. And then for me, I went to sport. I peaked the pyramid, uh, climbing the 514s, and then I've been... I build the pyramid underneath and I, I cycle that. And for me, it ended up being like almost a year long cycles between peak and, and building hmm. at the foundation. But I think 
I've advised other people doing the same. I've just done the same with trad. So built a pyramid this time, did multi multi-pitch, then peaking. And we were looking at, uh, myself and my partner were looking at what we're going to do over the next couple of years before potentially having a family. And when we looked at sort of the, the top-end goals that we wanted to achieve, I was suddenly like, we were suddenly like, oh, we've done exactly what we suggest to other people with. Well, we we try to avoid just suggesting to the people is we're looking at these really high grades. What's the next step for us in multi-pitch level? What's the next step in this? Rather than going, actually, if I if I was told I've only got two more years to climb, do I want to spend months and months and months of that on the same route? Probably not. I don't think my motivation is actually there. If it is, that's great because you've got that visceral feeling. But actually, the feeling that I had was on the conveyor belt. What actually excited me was. Well, I want to go to this crag in Switzerland, this one in France, this one in Norway. I want to go in the van for as much time as I can. I want to be able to have a thrashing experience. I've used that word a lot, but I want to be able to push myself really hard on a day send and be benighted. And I want to have like a real adventure. That's a real visceral feeling. For me to do that, I probably need to be around the 8A standard at most um, to not have to peak for it, to not worry about um pushing my fingers too much and so on. And I think it's like, it's really interesting that when you actually challenge people in this way and how I've experienced it myself, even recently looking in the mirror a little bit with that same thought process is the excitement that it develops in you where you take the pressure off the top end and you think about performing below that. It fills you with so much excitement that you're like, God, I'm actually really looking forward to this. I don't have to worry about fear of failure. I don't have to worry about getting my fingers perfectly right and maybe getting tweaky and stuff. I'm just going out to try and enjoy myself. And I am going to, I'm training all winter for it because I'm training for a robustness work capacity and because I enjoy doing some kind of structure. It fits well with my life. Um, but the goal isn't to perform harder or progress. It's to enjoy climbing more. Mm. That's so good. I mean, it's, <laughs> I'm just going to think out loud again and share share my experience but um but we've we've already talked about some of this and you were talking about having the goal of climbing 9A um 514D for people in the states that are listening and you know of course that's an enticing goal it's so obvious it's like such a benchmark for sport climbing and when you really thought about what it would look like to bring that goal to fruition it was like oh, I don't actually want to do that I don't actually want to commit myself to to that thing. And that's what I've been reflecting on for the last week and a half is like, I do want to climb V13. I have like specific, a specific one that's really inspiring to me. I'm sure there's, there's others. Um, yeah, there are others that I want to do as well. And I do want to climb, you know, 514, you know, eventually 14C. I want to go do Just Do It at Smith Rock. That's such an inspiring line to me. But what I really want to do is use those goals to get me to a level where I can go around and just do tons of V10s because that number feels more badass than doing a bunch of V9s, you know? And I want to be able to climb a bunch of 514As in my life instead of being stuck, stuck, you know, stuck at 13C or whatever. And I've just been thinking about that because I'm like, that is so arbitrary. It's absolutely ego and it's absolutely these stupid numbers that don't actually mean anything. I mean, they mean something in the sense that V10 tends to be 
cooler and the movement's more interesting and complex and rewarding than V8. Um, in, in my experience, like harder climbs do tend to be more interesting and um, I, I enjoy that part of climbing harder. But aside from that, I mean, I could go have that same experience on tons of V8s, maybe V9s now and 13Cs, maybe 13Ds now. But I want to be having those experiences at V10 and 14A. You know what I mean? So I've I've just been yeah. reflecting on that. Like, God, I, I have some uh I have some more work to do in internally to really dis to really tease out like what is my true inspiration there? Is it is it connected to the numbers? Is it because is it because like there's these classic V10s that come to mind when I think of V10 that I want to go do? Or is it just all ego and just how I think it would be perceived by other people? I don't totally know. Um, and, and I need to think about that more. But yeah, it's, it's just been interesting to reflect on that since, uh, since our last conversation. I would say as well, like, there's a, there's a really interesting, like, I, I always flip whenever people, like, whenever we're talking about this, I'm always flipping both ways. It's um, a game. There's, say you've, you've just said that, which I think is awesome. And I do think, like, same thing again, it's going, we're, we're both people that like to, to really delve into the way we think and feel. And I think a lot of people that listen to these podcasts are, they're after training knowledge, but they're also after, like, trying to figure out what works when climbing. If you adopt a, just more of an understanding of those two things, going, okay, I want to reach 514, sorry, V13, to climb more V10s. But you go, okay, so I'm going to try this V13 project because it's going to just, it's going to bring me up. I'm really psyched on this one thing, which is totally fine as well. Like, don't get me wrong. I think if it's got the visceral feeling, I'm going to go for it. But if you know that in the back of your mind as well, that the other thing I'm psyched for to do after trying this is going to be to try more V10s and mix in V9, V10s. What I would be suggesting is, okay, let's go and try this V13 in spring. And you're going to train towards it. But because you know that's only part of the step and it's actually a gateway to doing some of the next bit of volume, when you have those sessions where you're getting a finger nickel and you're like, but I'm really close or I need to push harder because I'm going there in spring, I really want to do this problem. When you go, well, actually, I really want to climb volume after that, then you back off. Mm. Or if you're getting stressed at the crag because, oh, I did it in two links yesterday, now I can't seem to do this section, this move again. I've only got a week here. It all becomes stressful. But then if you go, well, I'm on here because this is part of my training, as it were, for the next phase, which is to do more volume on cool routes. So then you go, okay, manage your head better. And then you go into the next phase and go, well, I really want to be able to see loads of V10s, but right now I'm, I'm probably just a little bit off. So I'm going to try and do some V10s, some V9s. And then you keep cycling that, but you go, okay, well, I know I, I didn't fully level up this year trying that way V13, but I'm going to go and try again. I'm really psyched. And I'll try and push up another time. It, suddenly that time, once again, that kind of timekeeper, the, the realism in the decisions are brought back home. And I think it just takes the pressure off everything and it just calms the whole situation down slightly, which is what we need. And, I think like, I mean, I've gone through so many iterations of, oh, maybe I should think in this way. Maybe I should think in that way. 
the, the main thing is going, okay, you're, you're going to climb for a long time. You want to climb for the next few years. I want to do loads of volume and I want to try and peak. So the last thing that I need is to be providing so much pressure for this short time period, because in five years time, that's going to mean very little. Mm. If you do get it done, then that's great. And I think you'll like really ride off that. But as you personally noticed or known in the past, when you push too hard for something and you sacrifice time, health, friendships, whatever, that's definitely overrides the cha- the, the the challenge. Um, like the thing I went my first HC, the thing I remember is um that was when I burnt out in my worst. I was uh, working about 60 hours a week. I was did a master's degree and I started dieting working the nutritionist. She told me I shouldn't be dieting because I was too stressed and I ignored her. <laughs> and then I was projecting this route. And the thing I remember is just complete relief. And on the day, I actually had a really good day, but the thing that changed it was um, there was a junior athlete there at the crag and I fell off with my hand one move below the finishing jug and everyone was like, you know, really quiet at the bottom. And you know, think, I mean, I'm not an angry person at all and I don't really freak out, but everyone just felt so awkward because I was so close and like, oh, well done sort mm-hmm. of thing. And I looked at this junior athlete who was uh, Josh Ibbotson, who's actually starting working here soon. And I remember being like, you are not going to act like an arsehole in front of him. You're, you've coached him and you're going to be good. And I went up and I like, got totally fine. The next girl I was chatting to people halfway up. I did the AB plus section and I was chatting to people on the rest and having a laugh. And then I did the route and I was like, man, like the main thing I, I remember is just enjoying the, the day at the crag with those people and the stress that led up to that and all of the burnout and stuff rather than just going like now, because I've built on that and I've, like even if I hadn't topped it, um, I built a base below that, and then I peaked again and built a base below that. I can definitely go back and climb that route after a couple of goes. Like hundred percent, it's it's within me now. Um, so if I had the foresight back then that you're going to get, you're going to improve beyond this, or you know, if you just take your time, it will come. Then you tend to relax, and progression happens naturally without necessarily having to aim for it. Mm if that waffle makes sense. It, it totally does. It's, um, I'm quiet because it's, I'm like, man, I've, I've lived that. I've experienced it. Um, I, I know you're right because I've, I've felt it. Like for example, uh, last summer, 2021 in the summer was, you know, the last time that I felt like I made a big breakthrough in, in my climbing. And I went to Rocky Mountain National Park and I was supposed, I had trained for like six weeks before that and I was feeling strong. I had trained with Steve Mache and um, been climbing on a board and things. And I show up in Rocky and I'm supposed to be there, you know, supposed to, I live on the road so I can do whatever I want, but I had planned to be there for like two weeks just to check it out. I just wanted to like check out Rocky Mountain and see what it was all about. And then I was going to go back to Tensleep, Wyoming to go sport climbing. And I had so much fun. And I was feeling so good and climbing so well and seeing so many cool, inspiring boulder problems that I just stayed. And I ended up staying for, I think it was two months. And 
you know, the first month did a ton of volume and just sent a bunch of things like V7 to V9 just because they were there and I was there and I was feeling good and they looked cool. Didn't overthink it. And then I rode that momentum and decided to pick a couple of V11s to try because I hadn't climbed V11 yet. And they both took work, but I did them both and just rode that momentum and, and did both of those V11s and then went back to uh, to Washington like a month later and did another one. And it, it's exactly what you were describing. It was just like, I just want to, I just want to climb here. I just like it here. I want to climb here. I'm enjoying being in the mountains and, oh, this thing's here. This is really going to challenge me. I'm not really sure if I can do it, but I've already sent a bunch of things. I feel really happy with my trip so far. It'd be cool to test myself and just see how much progress I can make. And it wasn't like I went on this trip to climb V11, you know, and, and that's what I've spent a lot more of my time as a climber doing is is training for the clear goal. And I, I don't know, I, I'm almost, I'm doing what you what you feel like you're doing or what you do sometimes where I'm flip-flopping back and forth and kind of talking in circles because there is so much value in having a clear goal and pursuing it. But I, I guess what I'm saying is I can really relate to you. Like uh, some of the best performances or seasons, some of, some of the, my favorite seasons, like the seasons I look back on and like, that was so much fun. That was so memorable. That shaped me in some way as a climber it was totally removed from having expectations and pressure and specific goals. And it was just being there, preparing for it maybe, but just being there and then just kind of um, listening to my, to my inspiration and trying the things that look cool and not really, not really having time pressure, not having like an end date. Of course, that's a super privileged thing to be able to do living on the road, but um you know, to some extent, I think we can all do that at our home crags too, if you have a season. So, um, yeah, that's great. Yeah, to go um, to go alongside that, the uh, some good examples and some clients that um, I've seen kind of successes with are one. Uh, so sorry, I say clients. Some client examples I've seen this quite a lot actually is say there's a lot of climbers here that operate out of sort of the south like london and those sort of areas they have pretty stressful jobs and they're really psyched climbers and they're really really putting in the effort but the sport climbing down there is like it's quite a journey it's quite hard to do and I, to be honest i think it's flat nails on the south coast <laughs> um so the grades are always hard um but like some of them have an amazing time and they get it done. I think that's brilliant. But then you notice that some really struggle because it, you need a partner, you need to share the motivation. And sometimes that's hard to organize around family and stuff. And what often happens is, why don't we just shift towards bouldering? You know, maybe they, they don't want to shift towards bouldering to begin with. And like, well, I'm a sport climber. And you're like, but okay, you want to enjoy yourself. And what's going to provide the most friction is doing something like you're climbing and you don't need to have you have less organization you're spending all your day organizing yourself um in work and around family let's remove the friction in your life around climbing let's make it as easy as possible um throw yourself in spouldering just for a bit see if it sticks if it doesn't stick after six weeks get rid of it but get on the board like totally arbitrary grades and stuff but you suddenly like all this momentum starts building up and you have agency over your own climbing again and 
it just you seem to perform because it just happens and you oh you've had all this transfer of skills so you're not going to lose it all but the friction in the effort is gone so then you're able to really enjoy the process and therefore you're able to buy into it more you don't have any kind of like nocebo effects and you start sticking with it a lot better and then the same i've had it with junior athletes that come from competition climbing um and you just see them going comp after comp. They're spending loads of money. They're going like, cost so much money to fund a comp season and they're really struggling mentally with it. And if they're psyched, they're psyched, brilliant. But you notice they're doing it partly because it's just a cultural practice. They just feel obliged to do it. Their parents spent a lot of money or they're spending a lot of money and their friends are in it, the culture's in it. But you can still train with all those people. And then you see them transfer to outside we go on a climbing trip and they're like, oh, they're having such a good time. There's like pure joy on the face. And like, I haven't seen you be like that on competitions apart from the day after the competition where you've all <laughs> snuck out and got drunk when you shouldn't. And the the only times that I've like, and you're just, they're talking about outdoor climbing. I'm, like, I'm at an indoor wall with them. And I'm like, okay, so we're training for this comp. Right, when are we going to peak? And they're just talking to me about outdoor routes. And I'm like, I think you just have to say it, go, why didn't you just try and focus on outdoors for a bit? You'll probably stick. You'll get stronger and fitter than ever before. And if you want to transfer back, you probably can. Um, but you don't have to. So I think that's another another example of just removes the friction in the effort. Mm. Ollie, this has been amazing, man. <clears throat> I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours. I mean, I have. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I've already roped you into a round two, so I think I should wrap up and let you go. Is there anything that you wish people spent more time thinking about? Anything that you want to um, leave with people to kind of close this conversation out that's, that comes to mind when I ask that question? I mean, if you're still with us, I'm like, I'm pretty impressed. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, the, the, my, I guess the uh, my my listeners have some good uh, listening capacity. They've I've, I've slowly been training them for the last three years, so pretty good listening <laughs> capacity over here. Yeah, yeah. I'm. Uh, I, I definitely. I'm. I guess I, I'm aware that sometimes when we listen to these things, and it's really we a lot of listeners. And I'm a I'm a patron, as you know. I'm. I'm I really enjoy listening to these podcasts and gaining information from other people and just adding it to the bank of formulas is, um, is it's really easy to kind of listen to stuff and go, I wish I, I just wanted some takeaways that like I just wanted mm. a session to add in or I wanted this or that. And I do, it's a real politician's answer to say that like that information's already out there or like it's, it's, it's kind of cool, but I'm hoping that, through this the key thing i want people to do is just in this conversation and other ones is just find like something that triggers you personally and excites you whether it's a concept a stretch a methodology or uh, identifying with another athlete that we've talked about or even in in the other podcast as well just go for it with that just try it out like don't half-hearted don't forget about it don't talk about worst thing is talking about doing it to everyone else around you getting the benefit saying i'm going to do this and then you don't do it because as we know you get the endorphin hit and you struggle to actually and nothing actually happens and people remember as well 
it's a good thing to remember is if you keep talking about doing stuff, people clap the fact that you haven't done anything yet. So <laughs> do it. Um, so I guess the, the main thing I want people to think is just like, just take action on something, whatever it is, just start doing it right now. And then in six weeks time, tell me if it worked. Mm. Love it. Love it. Don't try to do all the things. Just pick Just pick one thing. Do it for six one weeks. Thing. You don't have to do everything right this second. Um, there will be many six-week blocks in your life where you can try out a lot of these different ideas if you feel <clears throat> inspired by more than one thing. So, I like that. That's a, that's a yeah. good quote. There's, there's going to be many six-week blocks in your life. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Ollie. Um, anything you want to plug? Uh, where can people find you on the internet? Obviously, at Lattice Training. I believe you have your own personal Instagram as well. I'll be sure to link to that. Um, any any other places where people can find you and anything else you want to point people to? Um, I don't use my own personal social media anymore. So uh, okay. if you message me, I do check it now and again because some junior athletes are awful at contacting me properly via anything other than Instagram. But um, yeah, pretty much lattice training. And I, prob- I just want to say one big thanks to the lattice team. Um, I think that it's cool. I don't, I would hate for anyone to see, uh, it's quite easy for people to see us as a big company and some kind of corporate machine pumping out media and stuff these days, when I don't think people quite understand that in the office, it's a bunch of climbers that are so psyched and an amazing group of people that have lifted me up in terms of my knowledge, intelligence, like I don't know, even ethically, morality, everything is like got better because of these guys and they are so passionate about doing the right job for the right people and customer service and all of that. And um, I always wanted to work with people that were better than me and I'm lucky to have that now. And I think a lot of the stuff that I talk about has come from them. So, yeah, I think I'd like to kind of big up that and um, just remind everyone like that, everyone at Lattice is just so psyched to help out. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a group of climbers that are on the other end of the internet, not just, uh, not just faceless people, real, real psyched for you and your journey. Mm. I love it. I mean, I, f- I feel like I see that. I see that come through with what you guys have built. You guys have provided such amazing, such an amazing collection of resources, um, you're also a successful business, which is really hard to do. And, um, you know, of course, to do that, you do have to sell people things, but you you provide so much value with the way that you guys are doing that. And you give so much away for free. And it's, I mean, I, I would I would be willing to, to say this. I, I think it's true that Lattice Training has shifted the culture, the, the climbing and the, the training culture. You guys have been such an integral part of, bringing training and bringing data and bringing science and bringing, you know, so many good ideas into this space. And, and it's, it's just awesome. You're, you're helping so many people. So I really appreciate Lattice. I appreciate what all you guys do. I appreciate you, Ollie. Thank you for your direct support to me uh, through your patronage. That's <laughs> so kind of you. Um, it really means a lot. And it means a lot that you are here today and that you've given me so much of your time. So really appreciate it. And uh, thanks again. Yeah, thanks very much. And um, yeah, 100%. I mean, 
you're the easiest access for me to get even more information these days. So uh, <laughs> it's just, uh, I'm paying for my own service in some ways, but no, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm really psyched. And the same with like what we've done at Lattice is about, you know, sharing the knowledge and, you know, making sure that every climber, regardless of whether in the middle of a city or, you know, living the full-time pro lifestyle, we can enjoy the sport as much as possible. And I think like your podcast is probably keeping a million commuters happy day in day <laughs> out so yeah i think it goes a long way yeah cheers thanks for a good conversation yeah thank you too and for everybody listening if you're still with us we commend your stamina your listening stamina um thank you guys so much for listening and if you found something if something from that conversation jumped out at you write it down take action on it try it for six weeks and let us know what happens all right thank you guys until next time thanks for listening Shake it up, stop when the cup gets